Hi there, welcome back. Going to be listening to some Coursera. Just sent out. What? Oh. Okay, we're listening to <clears throat> Hot Topics in Criminal Justice, Preventive Detention Schemes. We're just going through the lectures. Preventive detention, 80% or higher. I strongly recommend Coursera. Right. Next up. Under pressure. Pushing down on me. <laughs> Reading prevention as blah, blah, blah. Your graded assessment. YouTube video. Oh shit. Mm. Oh man. Four patients with schizophrenia. Cases in which the insanity defense is raised. Why do we say they're not guilty by reason of insanity? I think many 
obviously killed five, her five children, how can we say she's not guilty? It has to do with the purposes of punishment, and particularly the retributive purpose of punishment that we talked about in the last lecture. The idea is the criminal law only punishes people who are blameworthy, who deserve to be punished. And the insanity defense tries to identify people who are not blameworthy, who are in fact blameless. So even though Andrea Yates uh, committed a horrific crime, she wasn't found guilty. She was found not guilty because we can't assign blame to her. She just did not know what she was doing. At least that's what the jury found, that she couldn't be blamed for a crime. So, the question then becomes, what is insanity? Right? That's a $64 million question. And in American criminal law, that the insane defense is defined very narrowly. Very few people succeed at the insane defense. And I want to demonstrate that by telling you about a lot of famous cases, the first two of which did result in a finding not guilty by reason of insanity, but the rest of which did not. So we have Andrea Yates first. She was found insane the second time around. Uh, her lawyers argued that because of her delusions, she came to believe that she was possessed by the devil, or at least the devil was telling her to, to kill her children, and that her children might be possessed by the devil as well, unless she killed them. In other words, the argument was if she killed them, her kids would go to heaven. If she didn't kill them, they'd go to hell. So that was her argument, and the jury ended up being convinced by that. Uh, ended up finding her not guilty by insanity. I'll talk more about her case in a second. Right now, I'm just going to be briefly describing a number of cases. The second case where a person was found not guilty by reason of insanity that I want to talk about is a very famous one. This is John Hinckley. You all know that he tried to assassinate President Reagan. He came to believe that Jody Foster would fall in love with him if he killed the President of the United States. So the defense argued in his case that because of his mental illness, and he did have a mental illness, he had perhaps not a mental illness as serious as Andrew Yates, but nonetheless a serious mental illness. Because of his mental illness, he came to believe something that just couldn't be true. It was delusional that if he killed the president, the actress Jodie Foster uh, would find him attractive. They also argued that he was compelled to commit his crime. So they made both of those arguments, and he was found insane. Um, but the Yates case and the Hinckley case are pretty rare. We don't see many cases like that. So here's the third case. You may know this case, Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, he asserted insane defense, um, and I think the defense attorneys thought they might have a good argument. Why? Because this case is very bizarre. Um, he would kill people, then cut them up into little pieces, keep them in a refrigerator, and snack on the body parts. Obviously, extremely bizarre behavior. He asserted insane defense in Wisconsin, but he lost. His insane defense was rejected. Here's another case. James Holmes. You may remember this. It's fairly recent. This is an individual who went to a movie theater in Colorado. Um, he killed 12 people and badly hurt 70 or at least hurt 70 other people. Um, as you can see from the slide, people at the time described his behavior bizarre, freaky, incoherent, and rambling. So, he argued as a result of an illness that he should not be found guilty of the court. And the jury did not buy his insanity defense. He was convicted. Um, another case, Charles Manson. Charlie Manson. <laughs> made famous by the Beatles song Helter Skelter. Um, there are also been movies about this case. He convinced his followers that African Americans were about to take over the country. And so he wanted to try to prevent that. His plan to do so was relatively strange. 
he got his followers to attack white people, Sharon Tate and her acquaintances, all of whom were white, and then tried to set it up to make it look like blacks did it in the hopes a race war would be ignited. And <laughs> thus, um, there would be the, the, an opportunity to make sure that a blacks didn't take over the country. He clearly was suffering from schizophrenia. He had a serious mental illness, but he refused insane defense. He did not want to assert insane defense. So despite what many people think about the Troy Manson case, insanity was actually never raised. Here's another case, the Unabomber case, the case of Theodore Kaczynski. Theodore Kaczynski mailed letter bombs to a number of different people in the country, all of whom were involved in technology, all of whom were somehow involved in developing technological innovations. And unfortunately, three of those people were killed by his letter bombs. A number of other people were badly hurt. Even the prosecution witnesses thought that Kaczynski had schizophrenia. There was no doubt about it. He had a serious mental illness. But he refused, also, just like Charlie Manson, he refused to assert insane defense. He did not want to be labeled mentally ill. In fact, in his famous manifesto, he said, I would rather die than be called mentally ill. Um, it's another case where some many people think, oh, the insane defense was an issue, but in fact, it was not. And he ended up pleading guilty to three counts of capital murder. So he's in prison right now, but he's not guilty of every reason insanity. The last case is Jared Lofner. Uh, this was the individual who killed a federal judge and badly harmed Gabriel Gifford, the United States representative, who was still suffering the consequences. In the weeks before the killing, he became incredibly bizarre. And after the killing, it was it was clear he was blatantly mentally ill. Um, they had to put him in a padded cell. He obviously had severe mental problems. But he and his lawyer decided they couldn't win an insanity defense, at least in the state of Arizona, which has a very narrow insanity formulation, and they ended up pleading guilty. So he also was serving time. So only the first two cases, the Yates and Hinckley cases, was there a finding of not guilty by reason of insanity. Even though all these other people had serious mental illness, they ended up uh, being found guilty either because the jury rejected the verdict or because they didn't want to raise the defense um, or they did not want to be called mentally ill. And in fact, that's what we find across the country. Um, as you can see here, four states have gotten rid of the insanity so came and raised the kinds of arguments we've been talking about. And the insane defense is raised in a very small portion of cases, less than a half percent of all felony cases. It does succeed occasionally, but usually when it succeeds, it's because the prosecutor says, yes, I agree, this person is seriously mentally ill. And to tell you the truth, I think the agenda of the prosecutor is, let's get this person in a mental hospital and keep them there for a very long time. I think that's what's going on in these cases. When instead, an insanity claim gets in front of a jury, it really wins. It wins about 25% of the time. And here in the state of Tennessee, in homicide cases, when the insane defense is raised in front of a jury, it has not prevailed in the last 30 years. So it's extremely hard to win an insane defense. Juries are very skeptical. In fact, some might say juries are too skeptical. Um, it doesn't help that the insane defense is defined so narrowly. And so when we come back, we're going to talk about the precise definitions of insanity. But first, any questions about what we just talked about? Okay, well, we'll take a break and when we come back. We'll talk about how the criminal law defines insane defense. <laughs> Start assignment? No, we're just going through lectures. Okay, 
I'll go back and listen to them again and then take the quizzes and assessments and stuff. Peer, you do, you, uh, do peer review. So, at the end of the last session, I promise we would talk about how the insane defense is formulated in the United States, and that's what we're going to do. But we're also, as you can see here, going to talk about other defenses that relate to a defendant's mental state, so-called mens rea defense, the administrative responsibility defense, and the automatism defense. So we're going to talk about all of these because they all relate to criminal responsibility, how criminal responsibility is defined in the United States. So let's start with the insane defense, and there are essentially two formulations of the insane defense, two different tests for insanity. Before we get into those, it's important to recognize that all insanity formulations require serious mental illness, usually mental illness of the type we saw in the first video. That is schizophrenia, some kind of psychosis, some indication the person is out of touch with reality, does not perceive reality correctly. But it's also important to realize that mental illness by itself is never a defense. There has to be mental illness, and then there has to be an impairment caused by the mental illness, and that impairment has to occur at the time of the crime. So this is the first insanity formulation. It's often called the McNaughton formulation after Daniel McNaughton, who tried to kill Queen Victoria back in the 19th century. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity under the test that now bears his name. And you can see what the test is here. There has to be a mental disability, which the law usually calls mental disease or defect. That's the language that statutes and cases often use when they're referring to mental disability. So McDonald's test is by reason of mental disability or mental disease or defect, the person at the time of the crime has substantial inability to know or appreciate the wrongfulness of the conduct. So this is obviously uh, for Chumpy. Some free legal advice for Chumpy. Plead insanity, bitch. So consider the Andrew Yates case again. I said we'd come back to that case. If she really did believe that if she did not kill her kids, they'd go to hell. But if she did kill her kids, they'd go to heaven. She had a pretty strong argument that she didn't think what she was doing was wrong. She thought what she was doing was morally justified. Now, contradicting that, as you saw on the tape, is she immediately called the police after she drowned her children, which suggests some sense of wrongfulness. But her lawyers were able to convince the jury that even though she knew what she had done violated the law, she still felt that, according to her own moral deserts and justification principles, it was okay for her to do this. Now, again, for anyone who's not mentally ill, that argument should lose. But because of her delusions, because of her hallucinations, um, the jury was willing to believe that she, in her world, it was permissible to do what she did, in fact, justified to do what she did. And so she was found insane. Another example, a case I actually was involved in, uh, an individual uh, who, like uh, the first individual saw in the first tape, had paranoid delusions, thought people were out together. In this particular case, the individual, he lived out in the country on a farm. He believed that crop dusters dusting the crops near him were actually government airplanes bombarding his house with electronic particles. And he could point to cracks in his house. Kind of and, this. and then one day his dog died. And he became convinced that was also... Poisoning the air. The Food and water supply. And was next. So one day he got a shotgun and shot at the airplane. And shot a crop duster that was flying near his house. And he was found not good to be reason insanity. The idea being that even though, objectively speaking, he clearly was violating the law, objectively speaking, what he did was clearly wrong. By, by his own perceptions, according to his own paranoid delusions, he was in the right. He was justified in trying to protect himself and his property. So he is found not good to be reason insanity under the McNaughton test. So that's the
contest very few people win it but i just gave you two examples <laughs> of people who did succeed in the McNaughton test the second insanity formulation is sometimes called the irresistible impulse defense it focuses not so much on cognitive impairment as opposed to volitional impairment that is an abil a person's ability to control behavior only 10 states recognize this defense but in those 10 states the defendant can argue either McNaughton or irresistible impulse it's, it's not either or you can argue both so in other words there are two shots in the states that, that adopt irresistible impulse defense as you can see here the explicit definition is whether the person by reason of mental disability or mental disease and defect at the time of the crime had a substantial inability to control the behavior uh acted impulsively consider the john hinckley case john hinckley tried to assassinate president reagan as i said before at the time he did so, there were roughly 100 Secret Service and police officers in the vicinity. Um, and his, his lawyers argued that shows that he must have had an irresistible impulse to shoot the President of the United States. In fact, one way the irresistible impulse test is operationalized uh, colloquially is by talking about the policeman at the elbow test. If the person would have committed the crime had a cop, an officer of the law, been standing right next to him or her, then it must have been an irresistible impulse. Well, in Hinkley's case, there were roughly 100 police officers standing near him. And that may have been what convinced the jury to find Hinkley insane. So those are the two insanity formulations. As I said before, there are other tests, uh, there are other defenses that a person with mental illness might be able to assert. Uh, another defense is called the mens rea defense or um, the guilty mind defense, that is, the argument is the person does not have the guilty mind necessary for the crime. Another way of putting it, which I think is actually, as the slide shows, an easier way to understand it is the defense arguing by reason of mental disability, he or she lacked the intent required for the crime. Now, this is a hard defense to win. If you think about all the cases we've talked about up until now, the AIDS case, the Hinkley case, my airplane assassin, they all intended to commit their crimes. They do not have this defense. And in fact, none of the people we've talked about so far lacked intent. They all intended to commit their crimes. So what's an example of someone who does have this defense? Well, there's a case that got up the United States Supreme Court involving a man named Aaron Clark. He clearly had schizophrenia. There's no doubt about it. And on the day of the offense, uh, he was playing his music very loudly. An officer came over to tell him to uh, shut it down or turn it down. And Clark pulled out his gun and shot the officer. So, at least objectively speaking, he's in big trouble. He intentionally killed a police officer. That's a capital offense in the state of Arizona where this occurred. But his defense was, because of his schizophrenia, he had come to believe that space aliens were invading the United States. Much like some of the delusions you, you saw the patients in the first tape have, he came to believe very strongly, at least this was a defense argument, that space aliens had invaded the Earth. And he thought the officer was a space alien. <laughs> not so how does that prove he did not have lack of intent if you believe his argument and by the way he lost his argument <laughs> but if you believe his argument um, it is that he did not have the intent to commit homicide he did not intend to kill a human being he intended to kill a space alien and therefore we would have this defense if he had won that argument he still would have been convicted of something but he would have avoided the first degree and probably a second degree murder conviction he certainly would have avoided the death penalty had he won that argument is called a diminished responsibility defense. This could be thought of as a mini insanity defense. It's someone who's not so impaired they're insane, but does have significant impairment. 
but this is a very narrow defense. First of all, as you can see, only about a quarter of the states recognize it, so it's not a very popular defense. Secondly, it's only available in homicide cases. It's not available in any other kind of case. Um, and then finally, um, it usually requires some kind of provocation by the victim. It requires the victim to have somehow triggered the offense, or there's not going to be a defense. Um, so an example of this, again, unsuccessful, at least partially unsuccessful, but nonetheless an example where the, the diminished responsibility defense is raised, a famous case out of California, where a person who clearly had some mental problems uh, was at work, was told to go home by a supervisor. A fight ensued. They got in a fight. Uh, the defendant went back to his house, got a pistol, came back, and shot the supervisor, shot him dead. Um, his expert witness claimed that the defendant at the time of the crime was hearing voices that were telling, that were telling him to get that guy, get that guy, get that guy, get the supervisor. Um, he was not able to reduce his crime down to manslaughter, but he was able to reduce the charge from first-degree murder to second-degree murder based on the diminished responsibility idea that because of illness, wasn't insane, but did have mental impairments that made him less culpable than a full-blown first-degree murder. So that's the diminished responsibility defense. The final defense I want to talk about uh, goes by a number of names, the automatism defense, the involuntary act defense. This is a very rare defense. It involves a situation where the person has no physical control over their body. Okay, there's no link between mind and body. None of the cases we've talked about so far come close to uh, supporting the the automatism defense. Andrew Yates, John Hinckley, Theodore Kodinsky, all these people were in control of their physical movements. All of them can control their fingers, arms, and legs. So they had no defense of this sort. What would be a defense like this? A person with ep epileptic seizures. Okay, this is not going to happen very often, but assume a person with seizures is walking along a cliff with his best friend. Seizure overcomes him, sends his friend hurling over the cliff. That would be a situation we'd have an involuntary act defense because the act in fact was involuntary there was no link between mind and body it's reflexive action another example there are a couple of cases involving sleepwalking where the argument is the person has no conscious control over the behavior but again very rare people rarely commit offenses when they're having a seizure or when they're sleepwalking so you're not going to see this defense very often so those are the five defenses um, that are most commonly associated with mental disability. I want to go back to a case we talked about at the end of the last lecture, uh, the Leroy Hendricks case. If you remember in that case, we were talking about whether he could be preventively confined after he had served his sentence. And what we talked about is the Supreme Court case that resolved his situation by saying he could be confined, he could be preventively detained after he served his sentence, if he was dangerous beyond his control. And the court ended up finding that Hendricks was dangerous beyond his control. But as I suggested at the end of the lecture, dangerous beyond control doesn't really give us much to go with. What does that mean? And I suggested, based on our discussion of the autonomy principle, that what dangerous beyond control might mean is somebody who's dangerous and lacking in autonomy is not responsible for their actions. Somebody who's as impaired as the kind of people we've been talking about, especially people who've been found insane. That's well, did yes. Hendricks have any of the defenses that I've just been talking about? Probably not, based on what we talked about in the last lecture. Uh, he certainly had control over his body movements. He had control over his arms and legs. Okay? He clearly intended to molest children. And he clearly intended to molest his stepdaughter. There's no doubt about it. 
Um, he couldn't get a diminished responsibility defense. Why? It wasn't a homicide charge uh, that was being levied against him. Uh, but even if you um, forget about that particular issue, um, he, it's pretty clear he didn't have extreme mental emotional stress at the time that he committed his molestations. That leaves the insane defense. Well, the problem there, first and foremost, is he wasn't psychotic. He did not have hallucinations and delusions, which are typically the kind of mental disability that's required for the insane defense. But let's assume that's not a problem. Let's assume that we can get an expert witness understanding says, well, he may not have been psychotic, he has serious mental disability, that's enough for the threshold inquiry in connection with insanity. Um, you still have to show more, right, with the insanity defense, either McNaughton or irresistible impulse. So, did he know right from wrong? Clearly he did. He knew it was wrong to most children. He made sure he did it when no one was watching, except for the children. So he clearly knew that what he was doing was wrong. He would not have a McNaughton defense. Well, how about an irresistible impulse defense? How about that? He did say, he, and this is uh, testimony presented at trial, he did say that I'm not going to stop killing, uh, molesting children unless you kill me. Uh, the only way I'm going to stop committing these sexual acts is if I die. That sounds like evidence of impulsivity. But would he have an insane defense based on that? Would he have committed his child molestation offenses with the police officer standing at his elbow? It's seriously doubtful. In fact, he always made sure that he committed his offenses when no one else was around. And he clearly committed those offenses intentionally and so on. So as I suggested at the end of my last lecture, it maybe the Supreme Court was wrong. If it meant by dangerous, beyond control, a lack of autonomy, a lack of responsibility, it may be that Leroy Hendricks' preventive confinement should not have been confirmed, but it was, so we'll leave up in the air uh, what the law is at the Supreme Court level in terms of preventing confinement. The bottom line, though, is as I try to illustrate throughout this lecture, including the example of Leroy Hendricks, it's very hard to win with any of these defenses. They're all narrowly defined. So that doesn't mean, though, the defense attorneys don't keep on trying. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how some defense attorneys have pushed the outer edges of mental state defenses. Uh, but right now we're going to take a break. I'm curious if there are any questions about what we've been talking about. I have one question. So is there a defense for temporary insanity? I mean, I don't know that colloquially that there might be. Yeah, I don't see my reason of temporary insanity. Is that a defense? That's a good question. Uh, it could come under the insane defense. Um, it's very hard to win those defenses. How about insanity from drugs? But you're skeptical of the insanity defense. But at least in most of these cases, like with Andrew Yates, there's a long history of psychiatric hospitalizations. John Hinckley also had a fairly long history of mental disability. Imagine a case where the person comes in and says, well, I wonder what happened to that person that I uh, remember, that person who um, was wandering around traffic and you like ate, you like killed somebody, ate their face off. Remember that? It's like wandering around over a bridge. L.A. or something. <clears throat> Oops. Insanity yeah. formulations require serious mental Insanity illness. test number Usually one. Usually mental illness of the type we saw in the first video. That is schizophrenia, some kind of psychosis. Some indication the person is out of touch with reality, does not perceive reality correctly. 
But it's also important to realize that mental illness by itself is never a defense. There has to be a mental illness, and then there has to be an impairment caused by the mental illness, and an impairment has to occur at the time of the crime. Like what? So this is the first insanity formulation. It's often called the McNaughton formulation after Daniel McNaughton, who tried to kill Queen Victoria back in the 19th century. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity under the test that now bears his name. You can see what the test is here. There has to be a mental disability, which the law usually calls mental disease or defect. That's the language that statutes and cases often use when they're referring to mental disability. So McDonough's test is by reason of mental disability or mental disease or defect, so the person at the time of the crime has substantial inability to know or appreciate the wrongfulness of the conduct. So this is obviously focused on an individual's cognitive abilities, cognitive impairment. Did the person understand right from wrong? So consider the Andrea Yates case again. I said we'd come back to that case. If she really did believe that if she did not kill her kids, they'd go to hell. If she did kill her kids, they'd go to heaven. She had a pretty strong argument that she didn't think what she was doing was wrong. She thought what she was doing was morally justified. Now, contradicting that, as you saw in the tape, is she immediately called the police after she drowned her children, which suggests some sense of wrongfulness. But her lawyers were able to convince the jury that even though she knew what she had done violated the law, she still felt that, according to her own moral deserts and justification principles, it was okay for her to do this. Now, again, for anyone who's not mentally ill, that argument should lose. But because of her delusions, because of her hallucinations, um, the jury was willing to believe that she, in her world, it was permissible to do what she did. In fact, justified to do what she did. And so she was found insane. Another example, a case I actually was involved in, uh, an individual uh, who, like uh, the first individual you saw in the first tape, had paranoid delusions, thought people were out to get him. In this particular case, the individual, he lived out in the country on a farm. He believed the crop dusters dusting the crops near him were actually government airplanes bombarding his house with electronic particles. And he could point to cracks in his house as evidence of this. And then one day his dog died, and he became convinced that was also due to the crop dusters. And he thought he was next. So one day he got a shotgun and shot at the airplane. A shot at a crop duster that was flying near his house. And he yeah, was going to not get the idea being that even though, objectively speaking, he clearly was violating the law, objectively speaking, what he did was clearly wrong. By, by his own perceptions, according to his own paranoid delusions, he was in the right. He was justified in trying to protect himself and his property. So he is found not guilty of some insanity under the McNaughton test. So that's the McNaughton test. Very few people win it, but I just gave you two examples of people who did succeed under the McNaughton test. The second insanity formulation what is sometimes called they were poisoning him with their fucking It focuses not so much on cognitive impairment as opposed to volitional impairment. That is an abil a person's ability to control behavior. Is that insanity? Only 10 states recognize or this defense. But in those 10 states, the defendant can argue either McNaughton or residual impulse. It's not an either or. You can argue both. So, in other words, there are two shots in the states that it that adopt irresistible impulse defense. As you can see here, the explicit definition is whether the person by reason of mental disability or mental disease and defect at the time of the crime had a substantial inability to control the behavior, uh, acted impulsively. Consider the John Hinckley case. John Hinckley tried to assassinate President Reagan, as I said before. At the time he did so, there were 
roughly 100 Secret Service and police officers in the vicinity. Um, and as, our, as lawyers argued, that shows that he must have had an irresistible impulse to shoot the President of the United States. In fact, one way the irresistible impulse test is operationalized uh, colloquially is by talking about the policeman at the elbow test. If the person would have committed the crime had a cop, an officer of the law, been standing right next to him or her, then it must have been an irresistible impulse. Well, in Eagle's case, there were roughly 100 police officers standing near him. And that may have been what convinced the jury to find Hinkley insane. So those are the two insanity formulations. But as I said before, there are other tests, uh, there are other defenses that a person with mental illness might be able to assert. Uh, another defense is called the mens rea defense or um, the guilty mind defense. That is, the argument is the person does not have the guilty mind necessary for the crime. Another way of putting it, which I think is actually, as the slide shows, an easier way to understand it is the defense arguing by reason of mental disability, he or she lacked the intent required for the crime. Now, this is a hard defense to win. If you think about all the cases we've talked about up until now, the AIDS case, the Hinkley case, my airplane assassin, they all intended to commit their crimes. They do not have this defense. And in fact, none of the people we've talked about so far lacked intent. They all intended to commit their crimes. So what's an example of someone who does have this defense? Well, there's a case that got up the United States Supreme Court involving a man named Eric Clark. He clearly has schizophrenia. There's no doubt about it. And on the day of the offense, uh, he was playing his music very loudly. An officer came over to tell him to uh, shut it down or turn it down. And Clark pulled out his gun and shot the officer. So, at least objectively speaking, what he's in big trouble. Of, uh, he intentionally killed a police officer. That's a capital offense in the state of Arizona where there's a car. But his defense was, because of his schizophrenia, he had come to oh, believe okay, that space aliens were invading the United States. Much like some of the delusions you, you saw the patients in the first tape have, he came to believe very strongly, at least this is the defense argument, that space aliens had invaded the Earth. And he thought the officer was a space alien not a human being. So how does that prove he did not have a lack of intent? If you believe his argument, and by the way, he lost his argument, but if you believe his argument, um, it is that he did not have the intent to commit homicide. He did not intend to kill a human being. He intended to kill a space alien, and therefore we'd have this defense. If he had won that argument, he still would have been convicted of something, but he would have avoided a first degree and probably a second degree murder conviction. He certainly would have avoided the death penalty had he won that argument, but he didn't. In the state of Arizona. Another defense is, is called the diminished responsibility defense. This could be thought of as a mini insanity defense. It's someone who's not so impaired they're insane, but does have significant impairment. Uh, but this is a very narrow defense. First of all, as you can see, only about a quarter of the states recognize it, so it's not a very popular defense. Secondly, it's only available in homicide cases. It's not available in any other only kind available of case. Only homicide cases. Uh, and then finally, um, it oh. usually requires some kind of provocation by the victim. It requires the victim to have somehow triggered the offense, or there's not going to be a defense. Mm -hmm. um, so an example of this, again, unsuccessful, at least partially unsuccessful, but nonetheless an example where the, the diminished responsibility defense is raised, a famous case out of California, where a person who clearly had some mental problems uh, was at work, was told to go home by a supervisor, a fight ensued. They got in a fight. Uh, the defendant went back to his house, got a pistol, came back, and shot the supervisor, shot him dead. Um, his expert witness claimed that the defendant at the time of the crime was hearing voices were telling, that were telling him to get
get that guy, get that guy, get that guy, get the supervisor. Um, he was not able to reduce his crime down to manslaughter, but he was able to reduce the charge from first-degree murder to second-degree murder, based on the diminished responsibility idea that because of mental illness, wasn't insane, but did have mental impairments that made him less culpable than a full-blown first-degree murderer. So that's the diminished responsibility defense. The final defense I want to talk about uh, goes by a number of names, the automatism defense, the involuntary act defense. This is a very rare defense. It involves a situation where the person has no physical control over their body. Okay, there's no link between mind and body. None of the cases we've talked about so far come close to uh, supporting the the automatism defense. Andrew Yates, John Hinckley, Theodore Kodinsky, all these people were in control of their physical movements. All of them can control their fingers, arms, and legs. So they had no defense of this sort. What would be a defense like this? A person with epileptic seizures. Okay, this is not going to happen very often, but assume a person with seizures is walking along a cliff with his best friend. A seizure overcomes him, sends his friend hurling over the cliff. That would be a situation we'd have an involuntary act defense because the act, in fact, was involuntary. There was no link between mind and body. It's reflexive action. Another example, there are a couple of cases involving sleepwalking where the argument is the person has no conscious control over the behavior. But again, very rare. People rarely commit offenses when they're having a seizure or when they're sleepwalking. So you're not going to see this defense very often. So those are the five defenses. Um, that are most commonly associated with mental disability. I want to go back to a case we talked about at the end of the last lecture, uh, the Leroy Hendricks case. If you remember in that case, we were talking about whether he could be preventively confined after he had served his sentence. And what we talked about is a Supreme Court case that resolved his situation by saying he could be confined, he could be preventively detained after he served his sentence if he was dangerous beyond his control. And the court ended up finding that Hendricks was dangerous beyond his control. But as I suggested at the end of the lecture, dangerous beyond control doesn't really give us much to go with. What does that mean? Yeah. And I suggested, based on our discussion of the autonomy principle, that what dangerous beyond control might mean is somebody who's dangerous and lacking in autonomy is not responsible for their actions. Somebody who's as impaired as the kind of people we've been talking about, especially people who've been found insane. Well, did Hendricks have any of the defenses that I've just been talking about? Probably not, based on what we talked about in the last lecture. Uh, he certainly had control over his body movements. He had control over his arms and legs. Okay? He clearly intended to molest children. And he clearly intended to molest his stepdaughter. There's no doubt about it. Um, he couldn't get a diminished responsibility defense. Why? It wasn't a homicide charge uh, that was being levied against him. Uh, but even if you uh, forget about that particular issue... Um, it's pretty clear he didn't have extreme mental emotional stress at the time that he committed his molestations. That leaves the insane defense. Well, the problem there, first and foremost, is he wasn't psychotic. He did not have hallucinations and delusions, which are typically the kind of mental disability that's required for the insane defense. But let's assume that's not a problem. Let's assume that we can get an expert witness on this thing says, well, he may not have been psychotic, but he had serious mental disability. That's enough for the threshold inquiry in connection with insanity. Um, you still have to show more, right, with the insanity defense. Either McNaughton or irresistible impulse. So, did he know right from wrong? Clearly he did. He knew what was wrong with his children. He made sure he did it when no one was watching, except for the children. So, he clearly knew that what he was doing was wrong. He would not have a McNaughton defense. 
Well, how about an irresistible impulse defense? How about that? He did say, he, and this was uh, testimony presented at trial, he did say that I'm not going to stop killing, uh, molesting children unless you kill me. Uh, the only way I'm going to stop committing these sexual acts is if I die. That sounds like evidence of impulsivity. Uh, but would he have an insane defense based on that? Would he have committed his child molestation defenses with the police officer standing at his elbow? It's seriously doubtful. In fact, he always made sure that he committed his offenses when no one else was around. And he clearly committed those offenses intentionally and so on. So as I suggested at the end of my last lecture, it maybe the Supreme Court was wrong. If it meant by dangerous, beyond control, a lack of autonomy, a lack of responsibility, it may be that Leroy Hendricks' preventive confinement should not have been confirmed. But it was, so we'll leave up in the air uh, what the law is at the Supreme Court level in terms of preventive confinement. The bottom line, though, is as I try to illustrate throughout this lecture, including the example of Leroy Hendricks, it's very hard to win with any of these defenses. They're all narrowly defined. So... That doesn't mean, though, the defense attorneys don't keep on trying. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how some defense attorneys have pushed the outer edges of mental state defenses. Uh, but right now we're going to take a break. I'm curious if there are any questions about what we've been talking about. I have one question. So is there a defense for temporary insanity? I mean, I've heard that colloquially that there might be. You know, yeah, that's by reason of temporary insanity. Is that one of these defenses or that that's a good question. Uh, it could come under the insane defense. Um, it's very hard to win those defenses, and you can imagine why. Juries are already skeptical of the insane defense. But at least in most of these cases, like with Andrew Yates, there's a long history of psychiatric hospitalizations. John Hinckley also had a fairly long history of mental disability. Imagine a case where the person comes in and says, well, I was fine until two days before the offense, and then I became psychotic, and it killed someone. And by the way, since then, I've been fine. So it's just a temporary problem. You can see where there'd be a huge credibility issue there. At the same time, in a case I'll talk about in a second, a type of case I'll talk about in a second, um, there conceivably could be some kinds of temporary insanity cases that might be successful with the jury. But I think on the whole, it's very hard to win those cases. They do exist, though. Uh, it's an example of defense attorneys pushing the envelope. And maybe you'll touch on this, but have we seen an expansion um, with maybe an increased focus on mental health? Uh, increased focus on what? On mental health in the population. I mean, I think that there has been an increased focus on, um, you know, trying to get people help when they have mental health. Yes, uh, that's a very good question. Um, some of the, sometimes these insane defenses trigger a popular response in two different directions. One is, why do we have this defense? If the person did the crime, they ought to do the time. There's no way this person should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. So that's one response. But another response is, well, we need to do more for these people with mental illness. Our system has failed because these people have mental illness and obviously did not get the treatment they needed. And so we've actually seen more than just a popular response. We've actually seen legislation that attempts to provide more treatment in the community for people with mental illness. Partly because we're just concerned about those people, partly also because we think it might actually prevent some of the crimes we're talking about. And it is true, as I'll talk about in more detail in a second, um, Andrew Yates, Andrew Yates could benefit from more treatment. Um, some of the other people we're talking about could have benefited from more treatment. Certainly James Holmes. Certainly Jared Loeffner. Jared Loeffner sought treatment and didn't get it. Jared Loeffner, the one who killed uh, the federal judge and, and uh, injured Gabriel Giffords. He didn't get it. So those kinds of cases do trigger uh, the kind of response you're alluding to. Any 
other questions? Yeah, the guy shut up to make the Okay, we'll stop here and pick up with the next topic. didn't think it was urgent because he sounded normal. He didn't sound stressed. So that was mental state defense formulations. Here they were listening to Coursera's Hot Topics in Criminal Justice. I'm your host, Trista, the hostess with the mostest. And we would just listen to Mental State Defense Formulations. We're going to continue on with this course. If you want to take a free course in anything, it's Coursera.org. And so you can get a certification too, certificate. It's very, very reasonable. I think it was, I don't know, just like, uh, off, don't quote me on this, but uh, fifty dollars. I think it's something like fifty dollars, or, or, I'm not sure. <clears throat> I'm auditing them, and I'm sharing my uh, pre-law school experience. I'm a podcast Trista for sheriff. I'm also running for justice, de la justice, here in. Pima County, two stone, two stone, stoner. The outer boundaries of mental state defenses. <laughs> okay, so we've been talking about the five main mental state defenses. The the five defenses the criminal law recognizes where mental illness might be relevant. And we've also been talking about the fact that those are very narrow defenses, especially for people like Hendricks, who are not psychotic. It'd be very hard for Hendricks to win an insane defense. Um, but nonetheless, as I said at the end of the last session, defense attorneys still always try to push the envelope. That's part of their job, right? Defense attorneys make arguments for their clients. And so they often try to fit their client into one of the defenses we just got through talking about. And the more we learn about human behavior, the more we realize that there are lots of different varieties of mental problems and mental aberrations. And defense attorneys take note of that and make the kinds of arguments I'm about to discuss. So... Um, the outer edges of mental state defenses. One example, you've all heard of this, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, this is a diagnosis that's uh, now in the official psychiatric manual, and it has been used in a number of cases to bolster some kind of defense. Uh, in situations involving veterans, defense attorneys will argue that war was very traumatizing, and it may have created a situation where their client, who's committed a crime, uh, either was insane or had some other kind of defense. And so, for instance, one case involving a veteran uh, had to do with an individual who had returned from Vietnam, uh, was back in the States, but periodically experienced, fla experienced flashbacks that he was back in the war. And this is one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress syndrome. You, get, you have a flashback to the time of the trauma, in this case, the Vietnam War. On the day of the offense, he apparently was having one of these flashbacks. 
um, and he ended up killing someone thinking it was a Vietnamese soldier. In fact, it was a relative of his. So the defense argument was because of PTSD, this individual was in a, was in a sense in a psychotic state. He actually was out of touch with reality. He believed he was in Vietnam and he wasn't. And in that particular case, the argument won. The jury ended up agreeing with the insane defense. Now, that argument doesn't always win, but in this particular case, it did. I've also seen cases involving veterans and assertions of post-traumatic stress syndrome where the defense was not insanity, but rather automatism. How does that work? I mean, these people seem to be in control of their physical movements, but the argument is this, that at the time of the crime, because of the flashback, the person's essentially an automaton. They basically, because they've heard a helicopter sound or a gunshot, are thrown back into the Vietnam setting, and their reflexive action is to be a soldier. So the argument is this is a reflex action, almost like a seizure. And the advantage of that argument is, unlike with the insane defense, we remember what happens to a person found insane, they're sent to a mental hospital, preventively confined. If you want an automatism defense, it's possible you'll be released entirely. You will not be convicted of anything because it goes to the act requirement of the crime. So that's the post-traumatic syndrome, excuse me, post-traumatic stress syndrome defense in connection with veterans. It's sometimes also used in connection with medical women. And you're all familiar with this phenomenon. Women uh, who are battered by their spouses, sometimes very badly. That obviously can be very traumatic. So you can see how post-traumatic stress syndrome would figure into these cases. Uh, there was one case where a woman was beaten for years, uh, prostituted by her husband, basically treated like a slave by her husband for years and years, finally killed her husband while he was asleep. The defense argued self-defense. The court didn't buy it. The reason being, the husband wasn't attacking her at the time of the crime. That's the traditional definition of self-defense. You only get self-defense if the threat is imminent. Since the husband was asleep, the threat wasn't imminent. Well, the backup argument was what? Diminished responsibility. This was a homicide case. So I okay, if I don't get self-defense, at least I should get a diminished responsibility defense. Because of the trauma, I was under extreme mental or emotional stress at the time of the offense, and I should have a defense. And this kind of defense can win. It has won. Okay, so maybe the best defense is self-defense, but a lot of courts will not buy it. And so instead, uh, the diminished responsibility defense is a backup defense. And more and more courts are recognizing it. Uh, we're seeing more and more uh, cases where this kind of defense succeeds. Uh, then there's defenses having to do with the use of drugs. Uh, what am I talking about here? At the time of the offense, the person is psychotic. They're out of touch with reality. But yeah. why? Because they've ingested a drug. So, for instance, there's one case where a person took LSD. Well, you know what happens with LSD. You can have hallucinations. This person came to believe that he's being attacked by a pack of wild dogs. He killed one of them. Unfortunately, the wild dog was actually a human. So, he was charged with first-degree murder. He started the insane defense. He said, well, at the time of the offense, I was psychotic. This is an example of temporary insanity, to some extent, because, of course, usually it was not an LSD. He took the LSD. All of a sudden, he was, quote-unquote, insane suffering from psychotic-like symptoms, but obviously after the drug wore off, no longer insane. So it's an example of what I was talking about before, and it's also an example of how these defenses don't win. This person's insane defense did not win. Maybe because it wasn't thought that he had a mental disease or defect, or maybe even if he did, nonetheless, he shouldn't win on a McNaughton test. Why? Because it was self-induced. Okay, he took the LSD, knowing it was LSD, and probably knowing that the LSD would cause some kind of hallucination. Just like in many states, Voluntary intoxication defense doesn't exist. Why? Because even if because of intoxication, you're not intending your act, you induced your state. You induced your state of 
situation where the defendant is psychotic because they failed to take a drug. In particular, specifically, they failed to take an antipsychotic medication that could have prevented the psychosis from occurring. This was precisely the argument the prosecution made in the Andrew Yates case. Because Andrew Yates had intentionally gone off antipsychotic medication a few weeks before he, she killed her five children. And the prosecutor said, okay, she may have been psychotic, she may not have known right from wrong at the time of the offense, but it was her fault. Just like with drug-induced psychosis, this was psychosis induced by Yates' failure to take any psychotic medication. But as you know, she was found insane. That argument didn't work. It might have been partially because her own doctor had also been reluctant to make sure she stayed on the drug. So in other words, the blame wasn't necessarily totally assignable to Andrew Yates, but also to her doctor. So that's another example of how defense attorneys have tried to push the edges, especially this first example, drug-induced psychosis. And sometimes those arguments have won. I gave an example of one where it didn't win, but sometimes those arguments can win. Here's one that's really pushing the envelope. So it's called the rotten social background defense, colloquially. Um, this doesn't necessarily involve a mental disease or defect of the type we've usually been talking about. It's more of a situational excuse. It's an argument based on a person's situation. The person might have some kind of mental problem, some kind of mental aberration, uh, but the idea is that because of the situation they are in, they had little or no control over the behavior, or they had some kind of diminished responsibility defense. They had extreme mental and emotional stress. So, for instance, we get arguments where defendants say, look, I grew up in a very impoverished neighborhood, a crime-ridden neighborhood. I was abused as a child various other circumstances of my life, and that all added up to a situation where at the time of the crime, I had at least diminished responsibility and maybe even some version of the insane defense. I think you can see why this is a hard argument to win. It's sometimes called the severe environmental deprivation argument um, to try to get across the idea that you're like in an extrasensory deprivation tank, not quite that bad, but you aren't normal because of the community and culture that you've grown up in. But it doesn't win because these, these crimes are always committed intentionally um, and there's no psychosis. So it, it's very hard, not impossible to win these cases, at least at trial. So all these defenses are pretty rare. Outside of perhaps the battered woman situation, it's very hard to win all of these kinds of defenses. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they, these arguments are made. And again, as we learn more about human behavior, um, they continue to be made. And I want to end with one last example which, contrary to what I've been talking about, has become very popular and somewhat successful. Not very successful, but somewhat successful. These are defenses based on neurological aberrations. I told you we'd get into brain science. Uh, now I'm going to do it. Um, these kinds of defenses have become much more popular with defense attorneys. Partly because of the kind of thing you see here. They're much more graphic. Okay, you can show pictures of what I'm about to talk about. You can't really show a picture of post-traumatic stress syndrome or severe environmental deprivation or drug-induced psychosis. You can show pictures of neurological problems. This is a very famous case. It actually wasn't a criminal case. It's just a case involving neurological damage. You can see it was pretty serious. This is the case of Phineas Gage. He was a railway worker. He worked with explosives. One day, unfortunately, an explosion went off, drove that railway spike right through his brain, right through his frontal cortex. Believe it or not, he survived. As you can see, he survived, but his behavior changed totally uh, because the spike went right through his frontal lobe, which is where uh, the part of the brain that's basically in charge of controlling behavior, he became much more aggressive, uh, much more willing to engage in any social behavior. And so, obviously, if he had committed a crime, the argument would have been, well, his brain made him do it. The, the defect in the brain was what caused the problem. We also see a version of neurological defenses, what could be called a neurogenetic defense. 
Um, some def defense attorneys have used the study that you see represented here. It's a little complicated, but basically, as it says here, it's a study that looks at the relationship between violent behavior, low serotonin or low MAOA, and child abuse. What's low serotonin? What's low MAOA? Well, low serotonin is a, a by a neurochemical substance uh, that helps to modulate mood, uh, helps to modulate other uh, kinds of psychological conditions. So it's a very important biochemical substance in the body, and research tends to suggest that if a person has uh, low serotonin, their moods and cognition uh, can be affected in a negative way. So what the study showed was that in the cohort of people studied that if serotonin is very low, it's represented by the red, and the person was subjected to severe child abuse, as opposed to medium or very little child abuse, the potential for committing a violent crime by the age of 26 was incredibly high. Okay, in other words, the argument is, if you got the combination of severe child abuse and low serotonin, you've got a situation where you have people highly predisposed to commit violent crime. So you can see how this argument might be made by a defense attorney. Uh, my client is different from the average person. They basically couldn't help themselves at the time they committed the crime. So what we see uh, happening more and more in criminal cases are arguments based on neurology or, or neurogenetics. The, the argument that my brain, my biology made me do it. And the reason I think these have become more popular, I've already suggested, you can show pictures. You can show the jury what's different about the defendant's brain. Or you can get studies like the Caspi study, which is what I'll call the study I just showed you. You can get studies like the Caspi study that give you solid research on how people with the relevant conditions are different. So when we return, we'll talk Caspi more study, about these neurological defenses. That's what I want to devote the rest of this lecture to. But any questions about what I just got through talking about? Yes. Um, so it seems like their society is like increasing perceptiveness and concern for mental illness um, and what can be used as mental defenses. And um, do you feel that the insanity defense or any of these mental illnesses that we um, just talked about should be more broadly construed in light of... Yeah, so I think you make an interesting point that there's no doubt about it. Um, society now is much more sympathetic towards people with mental illness than it used to be. If you remember the first lecture, I talked about the fact that we have this rugged individualist streak in our culture, and that tends to suggest that the circumstances are our choice. If we're poor, that's our problem. It's our choice to be poor. And some people have, in the old days at least extended that to mental illness. If you're mentally ill, you're mentally Ill that must be your fault somehow. But we don't have that attitude anymore. We're much more willing to say mental illness is a disease over which a person has very little control. Maybe they can get treatment for it, but they're born with it or develops in early childhood in cer under circumstances which the person can't control. And so you would think that attitude would slowly but surely percolate into the criminal justice system, that we'd see these defenses I've been talking about be being interpreted more broadly by the courts or at least by juries. We're not seeing too much of that. Uh, as you can tell from what I'm saying, because what I've been describing is what's going on right now. But neurology may be a toe in the door. Neurology, if we can somehow link what's going on with the defendant to something that's going on in the brain, then maybe there will be a way of integrating what you're talking about into the criminal justice system. And it is a fa scientific fact that all behavior is somehow linked to the brain, right? All behavior is somehow connected to the brain. So once we learn enough, 
about brain science, it may very well be that we'll see an expansion of the defenses. And as I'll suggest at the end of this lecture, maybe we'll see the end of the criminal justice system as we know it if we go too far down that path. Yes. Um, can we link all of these insanity and different types of insanity defensives to preventative incarceration and the goal of rehabilitation and incarceration? Like, how are the crimes treated differently if the insanity defense applies? Right. So if a person is found insane, they are sent to a mental hospital and they're kept as long as they're considered dangerous and mentally ill. So that's basically a form of pure preventive detention. The type we talked about at the end of the, lesson, of the last lecture. Uh, and as I said, generally speaking, that's considered impermissible. I talked about the European Court of Human Rights decision that held it was impermissible to preventively confine someone after their sentence. Um, I, Hendricks also held that it's impermissible to do that unless the person is dangerous beyond their control, whatever that means. But the basic idea is... Yeah. Unless the person is seriously impaired in their autonomy, you cannot prevent to confine them. Well, if we found the person insane, we have found that their autonomy is severely impaired. So it is okay to prevent to confine them. It's not violating what I call the autonomy principle during the last lecture because these people are lacking in autonomy. Again, the Hendricks case is a tough case because I think you make a good argument. Hendricks was not lacking in autonomy in the way we've been talking about it. the role of mental dysfunction in criminal justice. His legal claims based on neuroscience and neurogenetics. Milton Underwood, professor of law, Vanderbilt University, are raising neurological defenses, and there are essentially three varieties of these defenses. Uh, the first type involves a simple brain scan, designed to show a tumor in the brain or some other kind of defect in the brain. This can be done through a PET scan, a SPECT scan, or a magnetic resonance imaging (MRI), and it provides the jury with a picture of any defects in the brain. So that's the first kind of neurological evidence. The second kind is a brain scan, an fMRI, a functional MRI. And what this does is measure blood flows inside the brain um, in reaction to various stimuli. So for instance, uh, an fMRI might show uh, that because of low metabolism in the amygdala and the frontal cortex, a person is prone to impulsive behavior. So that's another kind of neurological evidence. And then the third type is what we've already seen, the neurogenetic kind of evidence that is illustrated by the Caspi study. So that's the kind of evidence you might see in these cases. And I, as I said, the cases in which we see this kind of evidence presented have skyrocketed. Many, many more cases than there used to be. But, interestingly enough, not very successful. Uh, my colleague Terry Moroni here at Vanderbilt Law School did a study of cases involving juveniles and young adults and found, as you can see here, uh, courts tend to regard even scientifically sound neurological claims as legally irrelevant. 
and that's at trial and at sentencing. This study focused entirely on sentencing. You think at least at sentencing we see some success, if not at trial. But this study found that adversity never had an impact at trial. Maybe 10% of the time it did. So even neurological evidence was a, with those fancy dancy pictures doesn't necessarily have a huge impact at, at trial or at sentencing. So why is that? And what I want to try to do now is answer that question from a legal point of view, not from a culture point of view, but from a legal point of view. And it might help answer why those other defenses I was talking about don't do very well. The other defenses based on post-traumatic stress syndrome, drug-induced psychosis, rotten social background, and so on. Now, one answer I could give that would be very easy is all of it's based on junk science. And that, to some extent, may be true. For instance, the link between post-traumatic stress syndrome and crime is not clearly established. Um, certainly, the link between rotten social background and any social behavior um, is hard to show. Uh, with respect to neurology, um, the fact that someone's brain might be stimulated in a certain way now does not necessarily mean anything about what it was reacting like at the time of the crime. So that can be a huge problem. Uh, so you see that that could be the kind of argument that a prosecutor can make, and it is sometimes an argument prosecution uh, prosecution lawyers will make, that this is all junk, we shouldn't pay any attention to it. But on the other hand, some of this evidence is scientifically sound. As, as Professor Maroney found, even scientifically sound evidence doesn't have a big impact. And so I'm going to assume for the rest of this talk that the evidence is good, at least the neurological evidence I'm talking about, has been obtained in a scientifically, a scientifically and methodologically sound way. Um, why might there still be a problem, even on that assumption? Well, it's because, you can already guess, the five defenses I've been talking about are so narrowly defined. What I want to do to illustrate that point is give you examples of two cases where neurological evidence uh, played a role. The first case is a made-up name, but it's a real person, uh, Mr. Oft. Um, Mr. Oft... Uh, was a normal individual, no criminal record whatsoever until his mid-30s, when all of a sudden he became very aggressive sexually. Uh, he uh, tried to molest his stepdaughter. He started uh, buying and looking at pornography. He started going online and looking at pornographic sites. Um, he was eventually committed. He started uh, propositioning the nurses, the female nurses on the ward. Very, very different behavior than he had engaged in just a year before, the doctors finally decided to take an MRI of Mr. Off, and they found a huge tumor in his brain. They removed the tumor. Behavior stopped. All the sexually driven behavior stopped completely. By six months to a year later, it started all over again. So the same kinds of behavior, going to prostitution parlors, pornography, uh, propositioning the nurses. Turned out, another MRI, tumor come back. They removed the tumor, behavior disappeared. This is a pretty dramatic example of how the brain might have an impact on behavior. Okay, so that's example number one. Example number two is a little bit different. Ms. Chiesa, that's his real name. It's a real case you can find in the case books if you want to. Um, this is an individual who apparently did have temper tantrums from time to time. Uh, he had had several confrontations with his next-door neighbors over their crossing his property. He believed they were trespassing. He told them not to do it, but they continued to do it. One day he saw them... Uh, crossing his property, he called the police and said, I'm about to go down and confront these two guys. Um, went down and confronted them. Um, there was an argument that ensued. He shot both of them dead. Okay? The defense attorney in this case got 
an MRI of his client. And it turned out the MRI showed that Mr. Chiesa had frontal lobe damage, FLD, frontal lobe damage, frontal lobe disorder. Um, so it's damage to the frontal cortex, as I said before, that's the part of the brain uh, that, that most neuroscientists uh, suggest controls behavior. So the argument would be he had less control of his behavior than the average individual because of the disorder, the damage to his brain. Should either of these people have a defense? Well, let's talk about it, uh, given what we already know about the defenses that we've been discussing. Either of them have an involuntary act defense, right? Both of them were in control of their limbs, their arms, and their legs at the time they committed their offenses. There's no way they have an involuntary act defense. They may have acted impulsively, but that's not what the involuntary act defense is all about. It's about a con the mind controlling the body, and that was clearly present. What about a men's rape defense? Both of them intended their crimes. Mr. Roth intended to molest his stepdaughter, intended to proposition the nurses. Mr. Chiesa certainly intended to shoot those two individuals. Now, did he have the mens rea, the, the intent needed for first-degree murder? Well, it depends on how premeditation is defined. He might have been able to argue some kind of diminished responsibility defense and knocked the charge down from first-degree murder to something lower. But he certainly had some kind of intent for homicide. There's no doubt about it. So he's not going to have a strong mens rea defense. And I already just got through talking about diminished responsibility. He, he may have had extreme mental and emotional stress, but probably wouldn't win, even though this is a homicide case. Why? Because there was no real strong provocation by, by the victims. Now, if there had been, maybe a better argument by him. But at best, this is the only argument he can make, because insanity is not going to work either, uh, as we'll get to right now. Uh, what about insanity? Well, the first hurdle that both Mr. Oft and Mr. Chiesa have to uh, overcome is whether there's a mental disease or defect. Now, some lawyers successfully argue that if you have a neurological aberration, you do have a defect. Maybe not a mental disease, but you've got a mental defect. It's right there in the brain. You can see pictures of it. So let's assume that hurdle is overcome. In some courts, it's not going to be. But let's assume it is. You still have to show, if you want an insane defense, that because of that mental disease or defect, you meet either the McNaughton test or the resistible impulse to tests. A resistible impulse test. So what about the McNaughton test? Knowledge of wrongfulness. Off clearly knew what he was doing was wrong. He wasn't irrational. He was impulsive. In fact, he might have committed the offense when a cop was at his elbow, but that's not this test, right? That's the irresistible impulse defense. He knew what he was doing was wrong. Mr. Chiesa clearly knew it was wrong. He called the police before he did it. He has no McNaughton defense, even if you assume he had a mental disease or defect. Really, the only argument they can make is this one, right? That the brain defect made it very difficult for the for them to control their behavior. And here, at least, Mr. Off might have a winner, a winning argument, right? Because he clearly acted very differently when he had the tumor than when he didn't. And he could say maybe the tumor, tumor basically took control. He wasn't able to control his behavior at the time of the offense because of the tumor. But even if he even if he wins that argument, remember, only 10 states recognize that defense. In 37 jurisdictions, this defense is not even available. So he would lose in those jurisdictions no matter how powerful his evidence is of lack of control. Mr. Chiesa has an even harder time, right? At least with oft, you can show that his behavior occurred when he had the tumor and only when he had the tumor. So it suggests there's a direct link between the tumor and Mr. Off's antisocial behavior. We don't have that kind of evidence with Chase. We know he has frontal lobe disorder, but we don't even know if it has anything to do with the crime at all. Lots of people with FLD never commit any crimes ever. 
So how do we know the FLD had anything to do with Mr. Chiesa-Cron? But even if we can show that link, and it would be hard to do, but even if we can show a link between the FLD and the crime, that doesn't mean the law is going to excuse them. This is probably the most important point I'm going to make here. Causation is not excuse. Just because we can point to a cause of a crime does not mean the crime is excused. If you think about it, this has to be true because all crime is caused, at least in part, by factors over which the person has no control. Social scientists have shown, for instance, that there is a link between violent crime and fetal alcohol syndrome, a link between violent crime and psychopathy, the diagnosis of psychopathy, a link between violent crime and violent role models. If you grew up in a violent home, uh, you're more likely to be violent. An extra Y chromosome, an extra male chromosome. There is a statistical link between that and violent behavior. Bad temper. There's a statistical link between bad tempers and aggressive behavior. But think about it. What I just described, those five conditions, that describes a whole bunch of criminals. <laughs> and probably we could say their crimes were caused at least in part, if not wholly, by those kinds of things. If we started giving them excuses, even partial excuses, that would change dramatically what we do in our criminal justice system. But it goes even further than that. All behavior is caused, right? Everything we do every day is caused by something. And a lot of those causes are factors of which you have no control. Our biology, what happened to us as kids, etc., etc. And if the law starts recognizing excuses, when a defense attorney can point to a cause of which someone has no control, we've basically done away with the criminal justice system. We have said... It's going to be very difficult for the prosecution ever to show that a person was completely culpable for their actions. And this is why the law focuses mostly on whether the person has control over their physical limbs, whether they intended the act, whether they knew right from wrong. If all of that checks off, then the person is going to be found guilty. And it avoids the question of whether the behavior was compelled or not. Because, first of all, that's almost an impossible question to answer. The way lawyers often put it, the way prosecutors often put it, was the impulse irresistible, was the impulse merely not resisted? I think that's a very good question to ask, and it's impossible to answer. But separate and apart from that, if we start trying to answer that question, it takes us down the hole of determinism. And you all know what that is. The idea that all behavior is inevitable, all behavior is determined, all behavior is something over which we have no control. And if we go down that hole, we've done away with the criminal justice system. We can't justly blame anyone if all behavior is inevitable, if all behavior is compelled. So, in short, it's going to be very hard to win these defenses, even when there's strong evidence of frontal lobe disorder, for instance, as in Chiesa's case. Maybe in Off's case, there should be a victory. Because, as I said, his behavior occurs only when the tumor is there and at no other time. That's particularly dramatic evidence or maybe really compelled behavior by a factor of which the person has no control. But the off case is almost sui generis. Uh, it's almost unique. There are very, very few cases like this, and that's why even neurological evidence, where you have pictures, are not typically going to be convincing in criminal justice courts. Um, but we're not done yet, right? All I've been talking about so far are defenses at trial just been talking about why it's hard to win a trial. It's hard to get a not guilty verdict based on this kind of stuff. But what about sentencing? Maybe it's sentencing. There's a more likely chance. Um, what about, and what about this situation? I've talked about brain defects. Go back to the Caspi study. 
Now, what about this situation? You can argue these people are strongly predisposed to commit crime. 85 to 90% of the people who have these two conditions, severe child abuse, low serotonin, commit violent crime by the age of 26. But once again, not likely to win. Why? occurs only when the tumor is there and at no other time. That's particularly dramatic evidence of maybe really compelled behavior by a factor of which the person has no control. But the off case is almost sui generis. Uh, it's almost unique. There are very, very few cases like this, and that's why even neurological evidence where you have pictures are not typically going to be convincing in criminal justice courts. Um, but we're not done yet, right? All I've been talking about so far are defenses at trial. Just been talking about why it's hard to win a trial. It's hard to get a not guilty verdict based on this kind of stuff. But what about sentencing? Maybe it's sentencing. There's a more likely chance. Um, what about and what about this situation? I've talked about brain defects. Go back to the Caspi study. Now, what about this situation? You can argue these people are strongly predisposed to commit crime. 85 to 90 percent of the people who have these two conditions, severe child abuse, low serotonin, commit violent crime by the age of 26. But once again, not likely to win. Why? Causation is not an excuse. These are the causes, but that doesn't mean you've got an excuse. These people who commit these crimes, they have control of their physical limbs. They intend to commit those crimes. They know what they're doing is wrong. At best, you've got an irresistible impulse argument, but where's the mental disability, first of all? And secondly, usually they're going to do it when no one's around. So they're not going to do it when an officer of law of the law is near them. That means, legally speaking, they're not going to defense it. But again, not going to get a defense at trial. What about sentencing? When we return after the break, we're going to talk about how all this plays out at sentencing. And we'll also talk about alternatives to all of this. What are different ways of dealing with these various kinds of conditions that perhaps aren't as narrow, aren't as constraining? Should we maybe change the criminal justice system to recognize some of these kinds of conditions? Um, so we'll take a break unless there are any questions. I have a question. So how do courts actually justify, uh, I guess, convicting people or still, uh, how do the courts allow for the defenses like the Caspi study or the rotten background defense? in the event that it does ultimately argue that causation is an excuse. I mean, especially for rotten background, it's this situation essentially has caused them to commit this crime. Yeah, certainly if, if you, so as your question, how do courts deal with that kind of evidence? Mm -hmm. Well, very often they'll just reject it. I mean, a judge has the authority to, to reject uh, an expert witness who the judge thinks either is basing his or her opinion on, on junk science. That's the, the one issue I talked about earlier, but even if it's considered solid evidence, um, the judge can reject a defense that doesn't neatly fit into any of the five categories that I was talking about. So the judge has a lot of authority. Now, if the judge doesn't think it's junk science, I think most judges will err on the side of letting it in and then letting the jury decide whether it should make a difference or not. And as I've suggested already, juries are pretty skeptical about all this, especially the rotten social background defense. Um, but even that defense could win, especially you have a certain kind of jury, right? A jury that understands what a rotten social background is. Perhaps you'd get a sympathetic jury. Um, so I, if, if, I think that maybe answers your question as to how this plays out practically. And then have there ever been instances where it has been found that people have had brain tumors after they've been convicted 
and then that has become up on appeal, or I mean, maybe even mentioned a list that have actually been convicted. So yes, it comes up quite frequently, actually, especially in the sentencing context we're going to get to, but it can also come up in the trial context. Um, the argument would be this. Uh, that I didn't know I had a brain tumor at the time of trial or at the time of sentencing, so I should have my conviction or my sentence revisited by the courts. It's usually framed in terms of ineffective assistance of counsel, which we're going to talk a lot about in lecture number four. Um, but the idea is the defense attorney should have discovered this. The defense attorney should have gotten that brain scan or that fMRI or consulted the Caspi study and made the relevant arguments. Uh, if it's not framed that way, it's actually very hard to get a conviction revisited or a sentence revisited. Any other questions? Okay, we'll take a break. Relevance of neuroscience. That assignment. Mental dis disability and disposition after conviction. because of the kinds of conditions we're talking about. Well, unfortunately, they often will not. Uh, here you see the law, at least in federal courts, that mitigation based on mental disability of any sort, whether it's neurological or anything else, is only permissible, first of all, if it's very significant, and secondly, only with respect non to nonviolent crime. Both mm -hmm. Mr. Oft and Mr. Chase have committed violent offenses. So it's not going to be available, at least in the typical non-capital case, at, in the federal courts. State courts, you can see some differences. Some state courts are more lenient, more likely to get mitigation in some state courts, but on the whole, it's very hard even to get mitigation in sentencing, at least in non-capital sentencing. Capital sentencing, with the death penalty involved, totally different story. The Supreme Court of the United States has said because of the high stakes involved in capital sentencing, criminal defendants have the right to introduce any and all evidence that might be mitigating. Anything having to do with the defendant's character, anything having to do with the defendant's record can get in. So as it turns out, not surprisingly, given what you see here on this screen, most cases involve neurological arguments come in capital cases. Way over 50% of the cases where neurological evidence is presented occur in capital cases where the only issue is whether the person gets the death penalty or a life sentence. And of course, what the defendant is trying to do is get a life sentence. So, Mr. Oft, of course, is a non-capital case. He did not commit homicide. He's not going to be eligible for the death penalty. Mr. Chase, on the other hand, could be convicted of capital eligible for so the death penalty. sentencing proceeding. And this is where he's going to want to do, introduce his neurological evidence to try to avoid the death penalty. Um, but he has a problem. Even if his FLD evidence is extremely persuasive, now I suggested the last session might not be all that persuasive, but even if it's very persuasive, he's got a problem. In fact, he's got a problem, especially if it's extremely persuasive. Why? Because the same evidence that suggests mitigation also suggests what? Dangerousness. 
right? If he's got this frontal lobe disorder in his brain, maybe that mitigates in terms of culpability, but apparently he's liable to go off half-cocked at any moment. He's a dangerous individual. And this is a problem defense attorneys have all the time. It's called the double-edged sword problem. It's called, it, the problem has to do with the fact the same evidence as mitigating can also be aggravating. So defense attorneys have to think very carefully about presenting neurological evidence in capital cases. They usually do. They usually decide to present it. But they have to frame it in ways that try to avoid the double-edged sword problem, try to avoid the jury thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy is dangerous. Because in most death penalty states, dangerousness is an aggravating circumstance. In other words, the jury is entitled to consider the death penalty if the prosecution can show a person's dangerous. So it would be ironic if the defense evidence meant to be mitigating suggested the jury an aggravating circumstance, a circumstance suggesting the person's dangerous. So you can see there's some problems um, with presenting neurological evidence. It's hard to win at trial at all. And even in sentencing, even in capital sentencing, um, there can be difficulties. So what are some alternatives to what we've been talking about? Well, this I think there are three that we should talk about. One is this. We broaden the diminished responsibility defense. Okay? We broaden the diminished responsibility defense. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, we no longer limit the homicide cases. Remember, diminished responsibility is limited to homicide cases. We apply it across the board to all cases. If a person has extreme mental emotional stress at the time of the crime, they should be able to get a reduction in sentence, if not in charge. Okay? Secondly, um, we no longer require any evidence of provocation. Remember, that's usually part of a diminished responsibility defense. It has to be some kind of provocation by the victim. No longer require that. That would obviously be much broader. It would basically be a mini insanity defense applied to all cases. Um, and that may sound like a long shot, but it's actually what the Supreme Court is starting to do in juvenile cases. That's what the rest of this slide suggests. Okay, what we're seeing in juvenile cases, partly based on brain science, is the Supreme Court making it clear that as a constitutional matter, juveniles cannot be sentenced to death. They cannot be given mandatory life without parole sentences. Why not? Because brain science, among other things, shows that juveniles are quite different than adults. Uh, up until, really, age 20, age 25, brains are quite different than brains after age 25 in the normal average individual. So when the average individual, at least through age 18, the part of the brain that deals with impulse, the amygdala and so on, is very well developed. But unfortunately, the part of the brain that controls behavior, the frontal cortex, is not as well developed. So you sort of have the worst of both worlds. Impulsivity is up. Control behavior is down. It's not actually as good as younger adults, excuse me, younger kids and adults. So in the teenage years, you have really the most impulsive situation as far as neurology goes. And the courts recognize that as a constitutional matter. And thus you see what you see here. Developments in psychology and brain science continue to show fundamental differences between juvenile and adult minds, for example, in parts of the brain involved in behavior control. As a result of that kind of conclusion by the Supreme Court, we get the uh, conclusions that I talked about before, legal conclusions. No death penalty for people who commit crimes by their juveniles. No mandatory life without parole. And in the mandatory life without parole cases, the court has also said the individual who committed a crime while a juvenile, they might be 30 or 40 now, but now they get a hearing to determine what the rehabilitative potential is. And so their sentence might be lowered significantly, and we've seen some examples of that. Well, that's the diminished responsibility defense I'm talking about at work. Basically,
it's being, well, it's only being applied in homicide cases, but the idea is, based on brain science and what we're coming to understand about human behavior, we're more willing to give people breaks. Um, that really has only occurred in the sentencing uh, context with very serious crimes, but the argument is it should be extended more broadly to other kinds of situations. So that's one alternative. Another kind of alternative is something you all should be familiar with. You saw this a lot in lecture two. Um, this is a hybrid system, a reform of our current system designed to reduce mass incarceration. The idea being that for less serious crimes, uh, we impose a maximum sentence based on retribution, based on just desserts. That's lower than what we impose on people with serious crimes. That's based on just desserts. Within those maximums, though, we're very flexible based on um, assessments of risk, assessments of treatability. So if a person's considered low risk, they're diverted out of the system, at least if it's a less serious crime. If they're considered medium risk, we maybe put them in prison for a while, but we try to subject them to community interventions that are good at reducing crime. Same thing with the more serious crimes. Remember all this from lecture two. Well, how would this apply here? Well, because we know more about human behavior, this system might work perfectly. We'll give everyone the maximum sentence, but within that maximum sentence, we will impose, we will provide the treatment program, the rehabilitation program that best deals with the condition we think they have. Rotten social background will deal with the systems that create rotten social background. PTSD, there are treatments for PTSD. Neurological problems, maybe we can remove the tumor. Or maybe there's something else we can do with respect to neurological problems. These kinds of approaches, these flexible approaches, give us a chance to deal with it. And if we solve the problem, the person will be released. Unlike a determinant sense regime, where it doesn't matter if we treat successfully or not, they're going to stay in for the time demanded by just desserts. What's the downside of this? People with the conditions we're talking about might stay in longer than people who don't have the conditions we're talking about. Why? Double-edged sword problem, right? The people with these conditions might be higher risk and thus end up being confined longer. It depends. If we can treat them, no, they won't be confined longer. But if we can't, they might be confined longer. What's the third alternative? Just give up. Give up with this whole idea of assigning blame. <laughs> Given to determinism. Given to the idea that, as some social scientists claim, all behavior is inevitable. All behavior is determined. No longer try to figure out who's responsible and who isn't. What would that mean? We no longer have the five defenses I was talking about. They'd be irrelevant because we're no longer trying to figure out who's criminally responsible and who isn't. All we would look for is if the person commits an unjustified any social act commits a crime that's unjustified. Self-defense, they're out. But if they commit a crime that's not justified, then we go to the dispositional stage. And we decide at the dispositional stage, what is the best way of preventing this person from committing crime? Many people might be released immediately or very soon after conviction. Other people who are considered higher risk may stay in longer. This is actually not a new idea. Uh, Barbara Wooten, who eventually was knighted, Lady Wooten, um, suggested this way back in the 1950s. A much more recent example of this by David Eagleman, book Incognito. Uh, David Eagleman's a, a, a neurologist, and he takes this position very seriously. He says that even very complex actions are often the result of factors over which we have no control. And if you buy that premise, it leads him to the conclusion that we should do away with the criminal justice system as we know it. We should do away with this attempt to assign blame, to figure out just desserts. We should instead go with the kind of system I just described. If it's an unjustified antisocial act, then we go right to disposition and try in a humane, dignified way to treat the problem and 
prevent the crime from, from occurring again. Now, in our last lecture, we talked about philosophical problems with this particular approach, with the approach that doesn't focus on blame, that doesn't concern itself with retribution and just desserts. But nonetheless, the more we learn about human behavior, perhaps the harder it becomes to make the argument we need to be concerned about blameworthiness and just desserts. And at least some people are convinced we should no longer be concerned about it. So that's the third alternative. Does this mean we're about to abandon retribution anytime in the near future? No, highly unlikely. Uh, it's, it's very unlikely we'll do so. And in fact, in the next lecture, we're going to talk about the death penalty. And you'll see from the death penalty lecture that retribution is still very much alive and well. It's still very much influential. Uh, but in the meantime, if you're interested in the kinds of things I've been talking about in this lecture, more about the insane defense, more about neuroscience, these are two possible resources. Um, so, any questions about this last session? Um, I just had, I'm not sure if you'd be able to answer this, but how does international criminal courts like take insanity defenses? So, what is the insanity defense in other countries? I think it's yeah. a good question. Um, it really varies, as you can imagine. A lot of countries, uh, Scandinavian countries, for instance, don't seem to care about the second part of the insanity defense. That is whether the person knew right from wrong, whether the person had an irresistible impulse or not. They just look at whether it was a serious mental illness. If it's a serious mental illness, they're handled in a special facility having to do with mentally ill people. But um, this goes back to lecture number two as well. The European system is much more rehabilitation-oriented to begin with. So it's not like, oh, we have a separate system for severely mentally ill people from the rest of the system. Yes, it is separate, but it's really all rehabilitation-oriented. So it's just... Uh, it's actually close to this third alternative in some ways. It's a situation where um, if we have a serious mental illness, let's treat it. Let's deal with it. But even if a person is not seriously mentally ill, in Europe, there's more likely to be a rehabilitative, a rehabilitative response to it. doesn't mean there won't be prison time, but there might be a rehabilitative response that's actually along the spectrum fairly close to what we do with severely mentally ill people. So that's one approach. Other countries don't recognize an insane defense. That's at the other extreme. Uh, they don't care whether there's a mental illness or not. Any other questions? Okay, thank you very much. That's the end of this lecture. Cleaning out my drawers. Alternative systems. Need to pass with 80% or higher. Neuroscience nuance dissecting the relevance of neuroscience and adjudicating criminal culpability.
peer graded assignment, desert, and into insanity, recasting the role of mental illness in criminal cases. YouTube video death penalty in America. Can't play it on a small screen. How wrongful convictions happen. History and structure of the death penalty. Sounds interesting. Execution is off the table. And with that, only the 
most culpable murders. Only the worst of the worst may be sentenced to death. So how do we figure out who is the worst of the worst? Well, the Supreme Court has held that at least one of those aggravators that I described a little bit earlier has to be proven beyond reasonable doubt. And the aggravator or aggravators that are proven by the prosecution have to outweigh the mitigating circumstances. If that happens, then the death sentence can be imposed. But if the mitigators outweigh the aggravators, the death sentence may not be imposed. And usually the alternative sentence that the jury is given is life without parole. The jury is given the discretion to impose life without parole as an alternative to the death penalty. Um, the Supreme Court has also said that in this category of worst of the worst, we may not include people who are under the age of 18 who kill and people who have intellectual disability, a phrase that uh, refers to people who used to be called people of mental retardation. Why did the Supreme Court hold that? Because the Supreme Court said that people who are under the age of 18 are too immature to be fully culpable. They just are not the worst of the worst. And the same thing goes for people with intellectual disability. Because of a low IQ, they cannot be, under any circumstances, the worst of the worst. Even if they intentionally kill, they cannot be sentenced to death because they're not in that category of people that deserve the ultimate punishment. So that's a survey of death penalty law. And about 30 American states still have the death penalty using statutes of the type I just described. 20 states do not have the death penalty, but about 30 do. The, the first video said 32 states, but since that video was made, two states have gotten rid of the death penalty. So today we have 30 states. About 10 of those states haven't executed anyone for the last 10 or 15 years. But the death penalty is alive and well in at least 20 states. And you see from this map that the United States is the only country in the West that still has a death penalty. The countries in red are the countries that have the death penalty. So the United States has the death penalty. China, India, several countries in the Middle East and Africa have the death penalty. But no other countries do at least robust death penalty. Why is that? Why is the United States one of the few countries that has the death penalty and the only country in the Western world that has the death penalty? Well, in the first lecture, we talked about... Those are brutal. If you remember, we talked about America's populace which tends to take a knee-jerk approach to increases in crime, tends to result in relatively harsh punishment. Also, the idea that outside of cases involving insanity, people are responsible for whatever they do. We have the concept of evil in the United States, and it plays a very strong role, that, and it creates a culture of punishment. Too many Christians. States. And finally, there's the issue of race and this fear of the other that we talked about during the first lecture. So all of those factors can contribute to the Bible thumpers. culture we have in the United States. It may help Judgy, persecutorial, Christian nationalist. But those are cultural explanations for the death penalty. What about theoretical reasons, policy reasons for the death penalty, separate and apart from culture? What do legal theorists say are the rationales for the death penalty? Well, you remember from the first and second lectures, we talked about three different purposes of punishment. We talked about deterrence as a purpose of punishment. We talked about individual prevention as a purpose of punishment, and we talked about retribution as a purpose of punishment. So <laughs> how do those theories help explain or not justify the death penalty? Well, there is some research about the deterrent effect of the death penalty, and according to the National Academy of Sciences, the research is as at best mixed. Is at best mixed. In other words, states with the death penalty do not have any lower crime rates than states that do not have the death penalty. And in fact, some research suggests that the death penalty may actually increase crime rates because it tends to brutalize the society in which it's applied. But in any event, the bottom line is the deterrent studies suggest that there's no clear deterrent effect to the death penalty. What about individual prevention? 
clearly if we execute someone, they're not going to be able to harm anyone else. That is a very efficient way of preventing an individual from harming someone else. But of course, there is an alternative to the death penalty in terms of protecting the public, and that's sentences of life without parole. If a person's put in prison for their entire life and not given the opportunity to obtain parole, they also are kept off the streets. Now, of course, they could threaten other prisoners or guards, but they won't threaten the general public. And in fact, when people are asked, would you prefer the death penalty or life without parole? We see a majority of people saying they prefer life without parole. They seem to think that's sufficient protection for the, the public. In other words, when people are asked, would you prefer the death penalty or no death penalty? A majority of the public says they prefer the death penalty. But when they are asked, do you prefer the death penalty when the alternative would be life without parole? Support for the death penalty goes well below 50%. So suggest the individual prevention goal is not necessarily the best reason for the death penalty either. That leaves retribution. The idea that some people simply deserve the death penalty. They've done something so evil, so bad, that the death penalty is the only possible penalty for them. And of course, this is expression, the biblical expression, an eye for an eye. Hi there, we're listening to Coursera online course, Hot Topics in Criminal Justice, Justice Criminal. And uh, in the death penalty worldwide. Anyway, thanks for 387k or something like that. Even if it's just law enforcement, welcome pig. I missed one. We just saw history and structure of the death penalty, and uh, economics of the death penalty and interrogation. Dollars? There are other what costs the to the death penalty. 
For instance, in Florida, when survey prosecutors indicated that even though they may be in fender, and, excuse me, in favor of the death penalty as a philosophical matter, they can have significant problems with it in terms of resources. Because what happens in a death penalty case is that the best prosecutors are pulled away from other cases and required to prosecute the death penalty cases because those are the most important cases. Those are the cases where most is at stake. So in other words, the death penalty sucks resources from the rest of the system and can limit what can be done with respect to non-capital cases. And another cost in the state of Florida is that even though only 3 to 5% of all criminal cases involve capital crimes, 50% of the Florida Supreme Court's docket involves capital cases. Why? Because every death sentence case has to be appealed to the Florida Supreme Court. It's required to make sure that the death sentencing process is consistent. That's another one of the expenses. It's another reason things take so long. So that's the economics of the death penalty. But there are other costs as well. As the third video made very clear, one incredibly significant cost is that innocent people can be convicted of capital murder. Innocent people can be sensitive. And that's what I want to focus the rest of this talk on, is why we can have a situation where people who are innocent of any crime are not only convicted, but convicted of capital murder, and not only sentenced, but sentenced to death. How can that kind of thing happen? Well, that gets us into how the criminal justice process works in the state of Florida and everywhere. Um, so let's talk about the state of Florida first. Florida has over 400 people on death row. It has executed roughly 70 people since 1976. And uh, it experiences about 38 death sentences a year. So that's Florida oh. in a nutshell. But the study oh, yeah. thing about what's going on in Florida, at least from the perspective that I just mentioned, is that since 1976, 22 people have been exonerated. That's about 5% of the people on death oh. row have been found to be totally innocent of the crime for which oh, they were convicted God. and sentenced to death. Now that's a very scary statistic. And that's yeah. probably not everyone who deserves to be exonerated. Those are the people who Is that 
if a person feels coerced, they might say anything in order to avoid the coercion. They might actually confess to something they didn't do if they're feeling coerced. Now, you've all heard about Miranda. Everyone in the United States knows about the Miranda decision. A person's given the warnings about the right to remain silent, and then you say, maybe used against you, having a right to an attorney. And that alleviates the, co the coercion that's inherent in interrogation to some extent. But interestingly enough, um, the warnings are almost always given before most interrogations. And despite the fact people are given these warnings, despite the fact people are told they have a right to remain silent and they have a right to counsel, they usually end up talking without counsel present. 80% of the people given warnings end up talking. So the issue in most interrogation cases is not whether Miranda warnings were given or not. It's whether after the Miranda warnings were given, was the confession given voluntarily or was there coercion, or was there coercion during the interrogation process? That's the issue. Well, and as I'm about to demonstrate, coercion is defined very narrowly. Essentially, the courts have focused on whether there was physical coercion, that is, whether there was torture, which is very, very rare, or whether there's some other kind of physical coercion imposed on the individual. Mental coercion is simply not considered coercion by most courts. So let me give you some examples out of the state of Florida. Again, we're focusing on Florida. These are four Florida Supreme Court opinions. In Chavez versus State, Chavez was interrogated for 54 hours. 54 wow. hours with one six-hour rest period. So otherwise, no rest whatsoever during the 50-hour period. Oh, Nelson versus State, Nelson was subjected to two all-night interrogations with just three breaks during uh, the second all-night interrogation. In Walker versus State, the interrogation was only six hours long, but Mr. Walker was threatened with the electric chair. And then promised that if he confessed, he wouldn't have to worry about the chair. And then finally, in Davis versus State, Davis was told that the situation would get much worse for him if he did not confess. Now, none of those cases involved physical coercion, right? There wasn't a baseball bat hovering over the person's head. But I think many people would say what went on in these cases was mentally coercive. Long uh, interrogations, uh, very long duration, uh, durations that... Um, either had no breaks or very few breaks. Threats uh, of the electric chair. Fucking torture. Or, uh, threats suggesting the situation would get much worse if the confession was not forthcoming. Those are situations where I think many suck. people would say there was mental coercion, but the Florida Supreme Court They're found no coercion brutal. in any of these cases, no unconstitutional coercion in these cases. The confessions in all of these cases were admitted into evidence. Okay. Now, can I say that any of the confessions in these cases were wrong? inaccurate? I can't. Uh, these people have all been sentenced and they have not been released from prison. However, Florida does have five exonerees who were convicted based on confessions that turned out to be incorrect, that turned out to be false. In some of those cases, the people and did have members. In other cases, the people Fucking did not. torture. Okay? So this can happen. We can get false conf uh, confessions that not only lead to conviction and sentence, but conviction for capital murder and the death penalty. So, what can we do about this? Well, there are lots of possible ways of trying to prevent uh, coercive interrogations. One is to videotape interrogations. What would that do? It would allow lawyers and judges to see precisely what went on during the interrogation. Yeah. It also would remind the police there's a camera on them at all times, and that might inhibit uh, particularly bad misconduct yeah, by exactly. the police. We can also train the police better. And you're yes. referring in particular to training police about how to handle people with mental disability, how to handle people who are young, because those people are very suggestible. If they
they have an authority figure in front of them, they're very likely to say whatever they think that authority figure wants them to say, even when there's not very much coercion. So there needs to be training in those kinds of situations in particular. And then we just need to have more restrictions on how interrogation is, taken, is taking place and on how interrogation is carried out. Here is a statute that's on the Florida statute books. As you can see here, it puts quite a few limitations on interrogation in Florida. It says the question may not use offensive language, cannot threaten negative consequences of the type we saw in some of the cases I described earlier. Interrogations must be limited to reasonable periods. They can't go on for 54 hours with no breaks. And the person must have personal necessities and rest periods. And interrogators can't gang up on the, the subject. There can only be one interrogator at a time. And interrogations have to be taped in their entirety. That's a pretty good rule. They yeah. probably would take care of a lot of the problems that I just got through describing. Yeah. But they don't apply to the typical interrogation. What kind of interrogation do they apply to? Interrogations of the police. Those are the mm -hmm. only kinds of interrogations this statute applies to. Why? Mm -hmm. Police unions were worried about unfair interrogations from members of their union. But yeah. you know the point I'm going to make. If the police think this is what needs to be done when they're interrogated, why is it, doesn't this also apply to subjects who are not police yeah. who are charged with exactly. crimes privilege. Um, of the type we're talking about? I think these why are very reasonable so restrictions. They do not prevent interrogation. They just put limitations on them. And these are arguably the kinds of rules we should have in the interrogation. So, any questions about what we've talked about so far? One thing I can ask. See, none. Let's uh, take a break. Pima we'll County come back. We'll talk about a second body cause camps for these motherfuckers. Fucking kids. Act like fucking Nazis when they're not when they're not filmed, and it's statistically been shown to cut down on police misconduct when they're filmed. So there's no reason not to put a fucking body cam on all these motherfucking pigs. That was causes of wrongful convictions. But I'm gonna put a message to myself today. Body cams. Something like 80% cuts down misconduct. Said, go to Pima County Board of Supervisors, demand body cameras for all on-duty policemen in Pima County, bring study that shows surveillance cuts down on police misconduct. Anyway, so, how are you guys, man? Did you make it through? Trump virus! Guess you did. Starting to hear some of those stories about uh, the people's granny or people who whose family members died of COVID. You know, their stories starting to hear those on line. Okay. Four hours ago this was posted. Republicans get eaten alive on House floor by furious Dems after votes. Are they alive right now? 
the White House will be providing $6,400 subsidies to all Americans. On this vote, the yeas are 221 and the nays are 212. The resolution is adopted. With that vote, the Republicans formalized an impeachment inquiry into <laughs> President Joe Biden. On what topic, they cannot answer, but it's just super secret spy business, everybody. <laughs> I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. But the Democrats on Capitol Hill were not just taken at, they were pushing back and showing how hypocritical, how absurd, and how <laughs> these MAGA Republicans were just doing Donald Trump's bidding. Take yeah. a Look at this clip of Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin from the House floor. Play the clip. More fucking chaos. We did not need Sherlock Holmes in a magnifying glass to find the presidential crime with Donald Trump. It came right into this house and smashed us in the face. Now, it's true Chairman Comer has collected another clip right here of Democratic Congress member Jamie Raskin from the House floor. Play the clip. Recognized for three minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Speaker. You know, the reason mysteries are called whodunits is because they start with a crime and then you have to try to figure out who did it. The Biden impeachment investigation isn't a whodunit. It's a what is it? <laughs> it's like an Agatha Christie novel where the mystery is what's the crime and that gets very tedious very fast after 11 months of this no one can tell us what's the what crime? President's, President Biden's crime was much less where it happened when it happened what the motive was who the perpetrators were or who the victims were. Maybe the funniest thing I've ever seen in Congress was yesterday in the Rules Committee when Congressman Nagus kept asking Congressman Reschenthaler what the crime was. And Reschenthaler, who's not on the Oversight Committee and is apparently just waking up to the joke, kept saying he didn't know what it was, but that's why we need an impeachment investigation to find out. And Nagus kept asking him, but what will the impeachment investigation be looking for? And finally, Reschenthaler said, a high crime or misdemeanor, and Nagus said, yes, but which one? Now, Nagus, of course, was... Next up is Democratic Congress member Eric Swalwell. Take a look at this. Problem is, they have zero evidence. The only crime is that Joe Biden blew out Donald Trump in the 2020 election. And that's a problem because this place is the largest law firm in D.C. with these lawyers working on behalf of just one client, Donald Trump. At the expense of everything else that matters. Next up, Democratic Congress member Garcia. Play the clip. Orn is recognized for one minute. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This impeachment inquiry is a political stunt with zero evidence. <laughs> We're here today not because of any wrongdoing by President Biden, but because Donald Trump wants revenge. Welcome to the Donald Trump revenge show. He's running a campaign promising to destroy democracy and the rule of law, and will soon be found guilty of serious crimes. The American people will reject this toxic and disgusting agenda. That's why Trump's allies here in Congress are trying to rescue him. They're throwing Robert everything Garcia. they can at President Biden, from misleading leaks to outright fabrications and lies. They're even trying to sell debunked Rudy Giuliani conspiracy theories. And let's be clear, the White House has provided thousands of pages of bank records, statements from personal bank accounts, and testimony from the president's family. But none of this is enough for the extreme MAGA GOP. This is all to appease the con man 
and the criminal Donald Trump. But make no mistake, the American people will see through this entire impeachment sham. Mr. Speaker, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Gentleman from Massachusetts reserves. Gentleman from Oklahoma is recognized. Mr. Speaker, I continue to reserve my time. Gentleman reserved. Gentleman from Massachusetts. Next up, Democratic Congress member McGovern. Take a look what he had to say. It's recognized. Mr. Speaker, we are here for one reason and one reason alone. Donald Trump demanded that Republicans impeach, so they are going to impeach. Uh, these guys, these Republicans, they don't work for you, the American people. Uh, they work for Donald Trump. He says jump, they respond how high. Uh, this whole thing is an extreme political stunt. It has no credibility, no legitimacy, and no integrity. It is a sideshow, a distraction from the fact that Republicans have done nothing. They have the wrong priorities. The American people think they are failing miserably, and Republicans need a diversion. So they are weaponizing and abusing impeachment, one of the most somber and serious things that Congress can do to attack President Joe Biden. I get it. They're upset Donald Trump lost. Some of them still don't believe he lost. Many of them are upset that his violent insurrection did not succeed on January 6th. And today they want to finish the job. This is a continuation of their crusade to overturn the election. Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three. Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three, man. Action. They have spent a year dredging up every conspiracy you can imagine against Joe Biden, and still their own investigation. Their own members, their own witnesses, their own internal documents all say President Joe Biden is a man of integrity who follows the law. Every single one of their crazy claims has been exhaustively debunked. Yet here we are. The only thing they've uncovered is that Joe Biden is a good dad. By the way, <laughs> let's compare it to what the Republicans were saying. Here's MAGA Republicans. Again, <laughs> Nels saying Trump 2024, baby. That's why we're doing this Trump 2024, baby. These people are utterly insane. insane. Play the clip. <laughs> Representatives, what are you hoping to gain from an impeachment inquiry? All I can see is Donald J. Trump 2024, baby. Well, that was quite pathetic. Here is <laughs> Democratic Congress member Jasmine Crockett. Just telling it like it is. We love Democratic Congresswoman Crockett. Take a look at this. We know that Comer loves to say the quiet part out loud. It's interesting. When the cameras are rolling, I mean, if he was right here, he would say the quiet part out loud. But as we were sitting there today in the room that Hunter Biden was not told to come to, but as we were sitting in that room, 
with an empty chair. It's amazing how quiet Comer was. Hmm. Now, he goes out on faux news and everybody else, and, and he has a lot to say. And in fact, I'll leave you with this because you've already heard from um, the Smurf Caucus. But <laughs> he decided that he wanted to go on the news and he wanted to say that he didn't want Hunter Biden to testify <laughs> publicly because he was concerned about the fact that the Democrats, that's us, the, the ones that are fighting for democracy, he didn't want us to have an opportunity to engage in questioning. Now, you tell me if that's what democracy looks like. All we are living with with these Republicans and all we're getting is false <laughs> equivalency. And she wasn't done. Take a look at this. Of more Another clip of Democratic... I love her. Are you guys still the, the there? ones that are fighting for oh my gosh you are hi love jasmine love me some jasmine he didn't want us to have an opportunity to engage in questioning now you tell me if that's what democracy looks like all we are living with with these republicans and all we're getting is false equivalency and she wasn't done take a look at this of more another clip of democratic congresswoman crockett play it say the math ain't mathing Especially when you consider the fact that the previous speaker, and who knows how many speakers we're going to have. I mean, some people are optimistic that, you know, it's this is only going to be the second one. We'll see if we end up with another speaker before the 118th is over. But we know that the previous speaker said, oh, no, we don't need a vote. We, we don't need a vote on the impeachment inquiry. So now, all of a sudden, you do need a vote? Tell me what's changed. Nothing has changed. The only thing that y'all have done is, is that you've invited and then uninvited and then invited back. And I, I don't really know where. Another favorite here at the Midas Touch Network. And I interviewed him uh, earlier in the day on Wednesday. Check out that full interview. Here's Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz play the clip. Yeah. And even though there's no evidence, Senator Chuck Grassley just came out today who's been working on the investigation in the Senate. And he said, after all the facts that we've uncovered, there's no evidence on Joe Biden. Why aren't our House members listening to Chuck Grassley? It's why in these hearings you don't hear them say Joe Biden. It's Hunter Biden or James Biden. Sometimes they throw in Commander, the dog. But they never talk about Joe Biden because there is no evidence on Joe Biden. Uh, and Heart health and staying healthy, especially when uh, you have a family that you want to... Right, I'm going to pull, pull up a little bit. ...the investigation in the Senate, and he's... Democratic Congressman Sorry, uh, I'm, Jared. I'm like actually like watching him out rather than, you know, looking at observing him. At, I would guess he, you know, he's. Uh, well, by the way, he's the um, heir of the Levi Strauss fortune. <laughs> so he's super rich, Florida. Okay. Um, and. Um, very nice dresser. I, I bet he's gay because he's such he's a good dresser, you know. Um, but I should look into it. I should do a podcast just on Moskowitz. He's. I should do uh, you know, like my favorite, my favorite Democrat series. My favorite Democrats, so Jasmine Crockett. All these people would be, you know. Uh, great subjects just do some research and just like listen to what they have to say about other things since I enjoy them that would be a good exercise I bet that would be kind of a popular podcast as well kind of timeless my own features do my own features uh, 
podcast. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Anyway, I wrote uh, Smurf, uh, Smurf Caucus. The only thing they discovered is that Joe Biden is a good dad. Those those are um, good jokes. Oskowitz, play the clip. Didn't even know there's no evidence. Senator Chuck Grassley just came out today, who's been working on the investigation in the Senate. And he said, after all the facts that we've uncovered, there's no evidence on Joe Biden. Why aren't our House members listening to Chuck Grassley? It's why in these hearings you don't hear them say Joe Biden. It's Hunter Biden or James Biden. Sometimes they throw in Commander, the dog. But they never talk about Joe Biden because there is no evidence on Joe Biden. Uh, and Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you yeah, want to be able to very dynamic. I love, I love the antioxidantly uh... delicious. I feel like you again she says ets.com okay now let's compare that to maga republican nancy from South Carolina, where again, she says, yeah, I don't really know what the crime is. That's why we're going to have to investigate. We don't know what the crimes are. Play the clip. Can you identify any actual policy decisions that Joe Biden has made in, in response to getting paid for those policy changes? Well, we'll have to, that'll be part of the investigation. Democratic Congress member Nagus, play the clip. Are you going to let the greedy heating companies and their crazy yeah. high prices decide if your family is allowed to stay warm this man. winter? Here's how a woman from Colorado is recognized for 90s. Midasbeats.com. Get this exclusive Republican Nancy Mace from South Carolina, where again, she says, yeah, I don't really know what the crime is. That's why we're going to have to investigate. We don't know what the crimes are. Play the clip. Can you identify any actual policy decisions that Joe Biden has made in, in response to getting paid for those policy changes? Well, we'll have to. That'll be part of the investigation. Democratic <laughs> Congress member Nagus, play the clip. From Colorado is recognized for 90 seconds. I thank the speaker. I thank the ranking member. Republicans have had a majority in this house for 11 months. And what do they have to show for it? Nothing. No efforts to grow the middle class. No efforts to lower costs. No efforts to build safer communities. Instead, an effort to default on our nation's debt. Two attempts to shut down the government vacating their own speaker and now a baseless impeachment that they are pursuing for one reason and one reason alone because former president trump ordered them to do so you ask them to articulate what crime they are investigating they can't give you an answer you ask them to identify any evidence of wrongdoing by president biden crickets mr speaker the american people I can assure you are deeply disappointed in the actions that House Republicans have taken for the better part of the last year. And this action is no different. I urge my colleagues, reject this farce 
of a process. And let's get back to doing the important work that the American people expect us to do. And I love this part right here where Democratic Congress member McGovern says, I'm going to need a map to get out of this rabbit hole that MAGA Republican James Comer's putting us in here. Play this clip. President Biden must be held accountable for his lies, corruption, and obstruction. I urge my colleagues to support this important and necessary resolution. I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Gentleman reserves. Gentleman from Massachusetts is recognized. Yeah, well, Mr. Speaker, I need a map to get out of the rabbit hole that Mr. Comer just took us down. But if you want to know what uh, an impeachable offense looks like, here it is. And that man, wannabe dictator, told that angry, violent mob to attack this Capitol building where we all are right now to overturn a free and fair election. This is what a smoking gun looks like. I know he'll scream it. And by the way, yeah. here is the Republican yeah. Senator yeah. Chuck Grassley. Awesome. Supposed this to be is what a smoking the... gun looks like. Representative Jim McGovern. Right on. That was fucking awesome. This is what a smoking gun looks like. J6. The Senate version of the investigation into President Biden. And here, Chuck Grassley, Republican, says, yeah, there's zero evidence that Joe Biden's related to any crimes. Play the clip. He said that he has, his father was not financially involved in any way with his business. Do you accept that? Uh, I'm going to uh, take the same position I've taken since 2019, that all I can say is there's some indication of maybe some compromise uh, with China, particularly, uh, but I have no evidence of it, and I'm going to just follow the facts where they are, and the facts haven't taken me to that point where I can say that the president's guilty of anything. Huh. Yep, and MAGA Republican James Comer, not very convincing here. Play the clip. This has been, I think, the most transparent uh, political or uh, 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 congressional investigation since since I've been in Congress for seven years. Oh, and this was a funny part where Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to butt into James Comer and Jim Jordan's press conference talking about trafficking, and then they had to, like, shut it down, and they just walked away from the press conference. Play this clip. But, Chairman, that was memorialized in emails that we that you guys leaked from Hunter Biden's laptop. Thank you. I would Let's like to ask Hunter Biden about the sex trafficking women across Thank state lines. Thank you all lines. very much. Thank you. And by the way, here's MAGA Republican James Comer on Newsmax saying that he's too afraid to even go on Fox because he gets. Elect me president if you want to.
Okay, so I'm doing it. Young Democrats. Women's March. It's USA. Sending it to Politics Girl, Mind to Touch, Mother She Wrote, Known for Philosophy, BBC News, BBC One, BBC Two, who would really love to see that? Who would really love to fucking see that? And the BBC. Politics, politics. She never gives me a shout out, so I'll try somebody new who uh, might kind of know stuff. Mm, I'll remember. Can't be tagged. Okay, how about um, um, Meti Hassan? Okay, so I'm going to share that on Facebook. Fucking silent majority. Silent majority. Hi, yo. Get up and set out is um, kind of the name of this. Okay, let's get back to the show question too hard on one of their morning shows by one of the reporters by Ducey. 
Play the clip. Yeah. We're waiting for, you know, you need to hear these. Sex trafficking women across Thank you all lines. very much. Thank you. And by the way, <laughs> since since I've been in Congress for seven years. Oh, and this was a funny. Uh, with China, particularly. Uh, but I have no evidence of it. And I'm going to just follow the facts where they are. And the facts haven't taken me to that point where I can say that the president's guilty of anything. Yep, and MAGA Republican James Comer, not very convincing here. Play the clip. This has been, I think, the most transparent uh, political or, or, or congressional investigation since since I've been in Congress for seven years. Oh, and this was a funny part where Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to butt into James Comer and Jim Jordan's press conference talking about trafficking, and then they had to, like, shut it down. They just walked away from the press conference. Play this clip. <laughs> the chairman, that was memorialized in emails that... We, that you guys leaked from Hunter Biden's laptop. Thank you. I would like to have asked Hunter Biden about being in violation. Sex trafficking women across Thank state Thank you all lines. very much. Thank you. And by the way, here's MAGA Republican James Comer on Newsmax saying that he's too afraid. Hey, Taylor Green tried to butt into James Comer and Jim Jordan's press conference talking about trafficking, and then they had to, like, shut it down. They just walked away from the press conference. Play this clip. The chairman, that was memorialized in emails that we, that you guys leaked from Hunter Biden's laptop. Thank you. I would like to have asked Hunter Biden about man act violations. Sex trafficking women across state Thank you all very much. Thank you. And by the way, here's MAGA Republican James Comer on Newsmax saying that he's too afraid to even go on Fox because... He gets questioned too hard on one of their morning shows by one of the reporters, by Ducey. Play the clip. Yeah. We're waiting for, you know, you need to hear these people try and connect. They're trying to uh, excuse themselves or prove their, their, their innocence. Why, why would Ducey say, if all the work you've done, that you have nothing? Why do you think that is? Well, he's been this. He's had that position from the very beginning. I've quit going on Fox and Friends because of Ducey. You know, I mean, he's the one guy on Fox that's been uh, very critical of the investigation. I have my theory why. We'll talk about that at a later point. But at the end of the day, he's entitled to his opinion. But uh, I don't think the average viewer of Fox News agrees with, with Ducey one bit. I mean, here's Nancy Pelosi, Democratic Congresswoman, former Speaker of the House, just saying, you know, all these MAGA Republicans are focused on is doing Donald Trump's bidding, but at the same time, don't you think they should be focused on like I don't know, like jobs and healthcare and infrastructure? I don't know. They're they're too busy taking that away as they focus on uh, doing Donald Trump's bidding. Play this clip. But in the meantime, we had plenty of work to do. Instead of this impeachment, well, what do what do they have to offer uh, for? I don't like to even call President Trump in the same sense, but the former occupant occasionally of the White House would say, <laughs> we've got to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Others will say we have to pass a, a total ban on abortion in our country. These are the kinds of things they have in store for women and families. These are the kind of kitchen table issues that they have in store should they win, which they must not. But in the meantime, to keep people distracted and to look effective to their base. This is red meat to their base. Look effective to their base. Let's impeach the president for no basis, no respect for the Constitution, no respect for the office of president, and certainly no respect the House of Representatives and their own members. Yeah. Okay, and while all of that was going on, 
what was happening in the background. There was very positive economic news. We have the stock market hitting an all-time high under President Biden. Here, let's take a look at the moment that Fox had to admit that live on air. Play the clip. Finish. We've seen now in the better part of two years. The Dow's never been higher. The other averages racing along. We'll tell you what sparked this and what it could mean and portend for you in the months ahead. Your world. And here, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell gave a speech and said that. Everyone was predicting, there was every indicator, everyone was trying to say the economy was going to do bad, this was going to be a, re- a year of a recession, but not only did not, that, that not happen, this has been a strong economy. Play the clip right, that I mentioned. I'm curious if you're looking back on the past year, you talked about navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. Can you talk about some of the ways in which the economy surprised you most this year, where you thought it would behave in one way and had to pivot to respond? Thanks. So I think... Um, Forecasters generally, if you go back a year, were very broadly uh, forecasting a recession for this year, well, 2023. The Fox and not only did that not happen, that includes next, Fed forecasters and really essentially all forecasters, a very high proportion of forecasters, which took very weak growth or a recession. Not only did that not happen, we actually had a very strong year. And that was a combination of, of strong demand, but also uh, real gains on the supply side. So this was the year when labor force participation picked up, where immigration picked up, where the um, distortions to supply and demand from the pandemic, you know, the shortages and the the bottlenecks really began to unwind. So we had significant supply side gains with strong demand, and we got what looks like a two and a half percent plus or a little more than that growth year at a time when potential growth this year might even have been higher than that just because of the the healing on the supply side. So that was a surprise to just about everybody. I think the inflation forecast is roughly roughly what people wrote down a year ago, but in a very different setting. And I would say the labor market, because of the stronger growth, has also been um, significantly better. If you look back at the SEP from a year ago, there was a significant increase in, in unemployment. It didn't really happen. We're still at 3.7%. So we've seen, um, you know, strong growth, uh, still a tight labor market, but one that's coming back into balance with the with support from the supply side, a greater supply of labor. It's a, you know, that's that's what we see, and that uh, I think that combination was was not anticipated broadly. And folks, a lot of a lot of BS going on from these MAGA Republicans. You know, they just want to treat people like crap, and they tell people that's the way they. It is so utterly disgusting what's going on. Sometimes I'm at a loss for words. Even of like, what are they even doing? Like, what in the world is going on here with these MAGA Republicans? That's why it's important that we just show you the clips, show you these videos, and you judge for yourself. You hear what they're saying. And again, I think the Democrats here are actually being pretty powerful messengers. I know Democrats get a lot of crap sometimes in the pro-democracy community for messaging, but they got the facts on their side, they've got the evidence on the side, they got the truth on their side, and they're pushing it. They're pushing it to the people.
Tell me what you think in the comments. Hit the thumbs up and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's free to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Let's get to 2 million subs by 2024. Let's do it by this month. Thank Lucky you so much for watching. Sabotage and hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Another act of sabotage and terrorism by Diaper Donald. My take on that. We're gonna have. I mean, some people are optimistic that you know it's this is only gonna be the second one. We'll see if we end up with another speaker before the one eighteenth is over. But we know that the previous speaker said, "Oh no, we don't need a vote. We we don't need a vote on the impeachment inquiry." Putting this on um, my take on. Okay, yeah, yet another act of sabotage and terrorism from Dr. Donald. <clears throat> See, um, that's some Taylor Swift. Fucking sham. Rides, okay. Jay. <laughs> College dumps. Yeah, that's a mud touch. DNC War Room. Yeah, that's on Twitter. Rogue DNC.
Liberal Democrat, I guess. Okay, Politico. Politico Europe. Actually, Instagram's the only one. Um, Now there's politics, but then there's Popop, Shadow Gallery, Fernando, terrifying, Michael Popop, okay, good enough. Political masterminds. Dahil. So, let's get back to the show, man. So now, all of a sudden, you do need a vote? Tell me what's changed. Nothing has changed. The only thing that y'all have done is, is that you've invited and then uninvited and then invited back, and I, I don't really know what... Another favorite here at the Midas Touch Network, and I interviewed him uh, earlier in the day on Wednesday. Check out that full interview. Here's Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz. Play the clip. And even though there's no evidence, Senator Chuck Grassley just came out today, who's been working on the investigation in the Senate, and he said, after all the facts that we've uncovered, there's no evidence on Joe Biden. Why aren't our House members listening to Chuck Grassley. It's why in these hearings you don't hear them say Joe Biden. It's Hunter Biden or James Biden. Sometimes they throw in Commander, the dog. But they never talk about Joe Biden because there is no evidence on Joe Biden. Uh, and heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible, is so important. We could all benefit from heart healthy energy. One of the best ways to get some, but. Moskowitz. Is supporting your blood pressure and circulation. Super Beats heart shoes are an easy and convenient way to support Hello. healthy blood pressure. Five dollars. to getting paid for those policy changes. Well, we'll have to. That'll be part of the investigation. Democratic Congress member Nagoose, play the clip. Colorado is recognized for 90 seconds. I thank the speaker. I thank the ranking member. Republicans have had a majority in this House for 11 months. And what do they have to show for it? Nothing. 
No efforts to grow the middle class, no efforts to lower costs, no efforts to build safer communities. Instead, an effort to default on our nation's debt, two attempts to shut down the government, vacating their own speaker, and now a baseless impeachment that they are pursuing for one reason and one reason alone, because former President Trump ordered them to do so. You ask them to articulate what crime they are investigating, they can't give you an answer. You ask them to identify any evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden, crickets. Mr. Speaker, the American people, I can assure you, are deeply disappointed in the actions that House Republicans have taken for the better part of the last year. And this action is no different. I urge my colleagues, reject this farce of a process, and let's get back to doing the important work that the American people expect us to do. And I love this part right here where Democratic Congress member McGovern says, I'm going to need a map to get out of this rabbit hole that MAGA Republican James Comer's putting us in. Here, play this clip. President Biden must be held accountable for his lies, corruption, and obstruction. I urge my colleagues to support this important and necessary resolution. I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Gentleman reserves. Gentleman from Massachusetts is recognized. Yeah, well, Mr. Speaker, I need a map to get out of the rabbit hole that Mr. Comer just took us down. But if you want to know what uh, an impeachable offense looks like, here it is. When that man, wannabe dictator, told that angry, violent mob to attack this Capitol building where we all are right now to overturn a free and fair election. This is what a smoking gun looks like. I now yield three minutes. And by the way, here is the Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who is supposed to be running the Senate version of the investigation into President Biden. And here, Chuck Grassley, Republican, says, yeah, there's zero evidence that Joe Biden's related to any crime. Let's play the clip. <laughs> he said that he has, his father was yeah. not financially involved in any way with his they business. They should all be uh, removed that. for misconduct. Uh, I'm going to uh, take the same... with misconduct and also what happened to insurrection charges from January 6th. Comma presenting. to sabotage and Just saying. <laughs> Smile. 
Have a great day, y'all. Have a great day, y'all. Might is mighty. Might is mighty. <laughs> Stuff for press. We're listening to Michael Cohen and Ben Marcellus. Midas Touch. This is Verdict, Verdict Watch in Giuliani case and Diaper Don's Hope of Delay is Crushed. Three or four dimensional chest looks like, and it's with President Biden. If you take a look at the average barrels per day of oil production right here, United States, Russian, and Saudi oil production, what you can basically see right here is what Russia and Saudi Arabia are trying to do to cause chaos and havoc and artificially suppress or they're just not doing a good job with oil production in general. But I think a lot of it is trying to limit the supply to try to create really high prices and create discord here. But look at what President Biden has been able to achieve during that time period, greatly exceeding their oil production at the kind of time period where they were starting to tank uh, their supply right there. And so you have the United States at 13.1 million barrels, by the way, if you were to compare parks like that, all of the metrics that are important and compare the United States to the rest of the world, the United States is number one in every good category, yet the Republicans want to gaslight us and say, you know who we should really love? Victor Orban in Hungary with that 20% inflation and his overall GDP was like $180 billion, which is what? Victor Orban, the most powerful, you know, he's a well-respected Victor Orban. Maybe, maybe you've heard of him, Victor Orban? Hey, you know, he's one tough cookie. And you sit there, you say to yourself, I can't believe that there are legitimately Americans that aren't pissing themselves. When you listen to Trump speak about Orban, about Kim Jong-un, about about Putin, I mean, you say to yourself, hey, okay, stupid is stupid. I get that. I really do. I get it. There are people that just, they're stupid. This guy will tell you how smart he is tell you that he finished at the top of his class at Wharton, which we know is not true, because that you don't need to get records from the school. They listed out who was magna cum laude, summa cum laude, cum laude uh, in the Wharton class the year that he graduated. He ain't on it. But he'll tell you that he finished first in his class. All right. Just another lie right there. When you start to praise the when you start to praise somebody who is anti-democratic, do you think that that should work here in the United States of America? Ben, I've got to tell you, if this isn't the call for you and I to once again repeat all our brigaders, 
make sure that you are registered to vote. You know, I was over at Bloomingdale's today. I went, you know, they have great ice, they have great yogurt that's over there at a place called 40 Carrots. So I went with my wife over there. Yeah, I was hungry and I don't really want to eat anything. So we had a very light lunch. I went and I had 40 Carrots um, yogurt. I'm talking to these ladies that work in the candle section. You have to walk through that in order to get to the restaurant. And we were bullshitting about Trump and so on. And I said, do you mind if I ask the three of you a quick question? They're like, no, of course. What is it? I said, you're registered to vote? And two of the three claimed that they were registered to vote. The third one said, not yet. And so I turned around and I said, take out your cell phone. Let's do it right now. And she did. That's what each and every one of us needs to do. We need to ensure that people are registered to vote, that they are prepared to vote. And I don't care whether it's ballot or it's going to be a mail-in. It makes no difference. It is your and mine and all of our responsibility to ensure that all of our family, all of our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, people like these three women at Bloomingdale are registered to vote because only through them and only through our actions will we ensure that this guy never gets even close ever seeing the inside of the White House again, and that includes an open public forum. He should never be allowed anywhere near the White House ever again. Shouldn't be allowed on the ballot. Stats on Hungary, Donald Trump continues to praise. It's a country of 9.71 million people, so it's smaller than L.A. County, and its annual GDP is less than the annual revenue of dozens of American companies, yet that is what Donald Trump is praising and the MAGA Republicans praise as a beacon of success. It is horrifying. Let me just show you some of these clips of Trump in Iowa. Michael Cohen, I'm going to show you a few and then get your reactions. Let me just go through a few of them here. Donald Trump talks about an issue which is very important to the people of Iowa and across the country, which is his golf game. And it's a very minor thing, but I'm a much better golfer than I was 10 or 15 years ago. It means something. You know, it means something in a certain way. It means something. Or it doesn't mean anything here. It means that you can't afford diapers for your child. You can't make your electric bill payment. You can't afford rent, or you can't afford to send your kids to school, or whatever it might be. That's that's negated. Yeah. Because this golf game is just getting so much better. <laughs> Thank God the King's golf game is great. All hail the King. It's exactly, by the way, if you think about it, like Marie Antoinette's famous line, let them eat cake. Here, demonstrating some serious cognitive decline, Donald Trump says one of the key things under his leadership was a rebirth in loyalty to the flag, he says. And he says, do you remember what I did with those NFL players? He says, these NFL players, they had a sitting problem. They were sitting. Do you remember that? I think he's referring to... 
when players took a knee. By the way, I was representing Colin Kaepernick, who was Colin's lawyer, uh, at that time when Donald Trump said, get the SOB off the field. But Donald Trump believes that the issue was a, a sitting problem. They were sitting. Play the clip. So under my leadership, we have a great rebirth of loyalty to the American farmer and to the American flag because we've lost a lot of loyalty. Remember what I did with the NFL when they had a little bit of a uh, sit-down problem and uh, they were sitting down. We didn't like that. Thanks to big people like you, Arizonans in need won't. They were sitting down and we didn't like it. Here he is on the verge of slurring his words, bragging about the cognitive exam he took. <laughs> be happy to hear. Our great football player is going to be happy to hear this. I took a physical and I passed with flying colors and I took a cognitive exam. <laughs> I said, Doctor, give me anything you want. I want to take. <laughs> give me anything you want. Give me anything you want. You know what? You know he reminds me of, he reminds me of that movie, uh, movie. Okay. what is it, the, uh, the candidate, something like that? Armors and people who don't lay down on the field for the backbone of America. I mean, it's that stupid what he's saying. The fact that people aren't laughing at him, the fact that he is right now leading this group of GOP fools. I just <laughs> the fact that you can have members of Congress, they bunch have of fucking traitors. Something. They manage to bamboozle right, people from their communities into thinking that they care about them and their problems more than they care about kissing Donald's ass. But they don't. And yet, they still vote for these people, and they still are interested in voting for Donald Trump. I mean, let me be very clear. That's not who America is. That's not what we want for America. This is when we listen to this sort of rambling of a lunatic mind, we need to be scared. As I said on television the other day, um, be afraid. Be very afraid. And I don't want this show to be a doom and gloom type of show. What I want it to be is together. We are going to beat this shit down. And we are going to win, not just Congress, because now you may have heard uh, that they are going to be re uh, gerrymandering the gerrymander, uh, you know, in order to be more inclusive. Um, That'll be good for <laughs> And we'll keep the Senate, and we will take the White House. And then finally, stuff can get done. Instead of allowing, when you have the split like we have now, you have a group of idiots that are trying to appease a man of one, a man who cares nothing for this country, only cares about what <laughs> case, I'm referring to the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. I want to get into the uh, impeachment inquiry, frivolous impeachment inquiry in just a bit, but you know, one of the things I appreciate about President Trump <laughs> is that they
they stand on principles. And I think there was once upon a time where the Republican Party did as well. They stood on conservative principles or whatever they consider that to be. No, no more. There's nothing conservative about this movement at all. As I've said, I think I'm more conservative than them. I believe we're serving our democracy and our institutions. But having a series of principles and living up to those principles and not wavering is something I appreciate about President Joe Biden. Call that old school, if you will, but I call that leadership. Show you this final clip from uh, Trump's speech. Here he is again, like unwell, mixing up words and concepts, saying that special counsel Jack Smith, or as he says, they are trying to go to the Supreme Court to get a guilty plea about me. This makes absolutely no sense what he's saying. I think he's trying to say is that special counsel Jack Smith filed a petition with the United States Supreme Court directly to hear Trump's appeal on a direct petition, expediting it uh, even beyond the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, so it just goes directly to the Supreme Court. But he, here's what Trump says, play the clip. Waited and waited and waited, and then they saw I was running, and they waited, and then they saw I was hot, and they filed lawsuits. These are very dishonest people. That's called election interference. These are very, and now they're fighting like hell because they want to try and get a guilty plea from the Supreme Court of the United States, which I can't imagine because you have presidential immunity. But strange things happen, but they want to get that because that's the only way they're going to win the election. It's a very sick thing. But, but play this clip, too. This is Alina Haba right here. She gave an interview where she said she wants the Supreme Court to get involved. Here, play this clip. And I believe uh, someone had called on, on the Supreme Court to do this exact thing. We need the Supreme Court to step in and stop this. This has become complete mayhem. Mm. And if they don't start looking at these decisions, and as the highest court in this country, as the arbiter of law, the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution, the people that are supposed to enforce our bedrock, if they don't start doing it, which thank goodness they are, we, you know, have some law and order hopefully soon. Well, people. Cohen, she doesn't know the Blassen game case. She's telling the Supreme Court to intervene right now and get involved. Donald Trump is saying that he doesn't want the Supreme Court to get involved. But here's the thing. Special counsel Jack Smith has filed a petition for certiorari directly with the Supreme Court to hear the issue of absolute immunity. So, Alina Hoppe, I assume being sarcastic here, but based on what you said, you and Donald Trump would stipulate to have the Supreme Court hear the issue on an expedited basis right now. But Cohen, you and I both know that when December 20th comes around and Donald Trump submits his brief, he's going to say this should not go before the Supreme Court. They should not adjudicate this right now. More delay, delay, delay. And it's just that constant gaslight. It is a barrage well, of lies and talking about. That's the whole thing. If we go back and we replay Trump's statement, his statement contradicts the statement that preceded it. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because, first of all, that's not what the Supreme Court is going to do here. They, it's What they're going to do is they're going to make a decision on the question of whether or not presidential immunity for, the, for this specific act is covered you know, based upon 
uh, the Presidential Immunity Act. His understanding of even what the issue is is so lacking that it's, again, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer to understand that he has no idea what he's babbling about. It's just babble. And it's this psychobabble that's circular. It just goes round and round. But, you know, crazy <laughs> things have happened. Right? So he's already setting it up that when he loses, he knows that he will lose the case. He will lose the argument, especially if Alina Abba is going to be is going to be uh, representing him before the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, talk about it. funny as hell. I'm just sitting there and I'm saying to myself, what the hell are they talking about? But it's, you know, first of all, forget about the fact that they contradict each other continuously. And that's not really her fault because he contradicts everybody. He'll change his position regardless of um, you know, who's representing him and what the case is about. He's constantly flip-flopping on everything. But he's already setting it up that... When they lose the argument, oh, I told you, I told you, you see, you can't be wrong if you say yes and no to the same question. He's got it covered. And that's really what Donald, that's the, that's really, I hate to say it, the brilliance of Donald's bullshit and Lena Abba. You know, there's an expression I remember from like grade school. You can't dazzle them with your brilliance. You and that's what she does. She's got like five or six lines. And she just repeats all of the expert tape. And let's talk about, you know, uh, U.S. versus Nixon. And so they're not applicable, you idiot. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. They're not applicable. So, Alina, because I know you watched this. In fact, she approached me today and at the uh, at the hearing, and she said, oh, you've been unusually active regarding me on your social media account. And I, heard, I looked at her, and I said, it's just starting. It's, it's just the beginning. You know? I mean, this is, this is so insane. They're talking about issues. She's referring to issues that she has no idea about. I mean, the fact that she didn't know about the blessing game versus Trump decision, and yet this is the expert on presidential immunity. I don't know. That's a that's a tough one for me. I mean, that's almost like you know. I mean, that's almost like mechanic not knowing how to fill up a gas tank. Let me play the moment where she was asked that question, and then I want to talk briefly about Giuliani and this impeachment inquiry. But let's play this clip of Alina Hubbard. Okay, um, are you familiar with Blasting Game versus Constitution? 
that's uh, at issue here on presidential immunity that relates to your client in a case that you were involved in. <laughs> I mean, come on. I want to show you this book. I, I got I to go to... Um, so, like Donald Trump said that he was going to testify at the New York Attorney General civil fraud case on direct examination, Giuliani said that he was going to testify in the defamation case brought by Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. Here's just one of those clips where Giuliani said that he would be testifying. Let's play this clip of three. I was proven to be telling the truth, and they were proven to be liars. Once again, that will happen. Uh, when I testify, you'll get the whole story, and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true, and that whatever happened to them, which is it's unfortunate for other people overreacting, but everything I said about them is true. Do you? Okay, so that's Giuliani saying that he's going to testify. Here's him from another day at trial where he defames them again. Here, play this clip. Whatever happened to them, which is, it's unfortunate for other people overreact, but everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to... Of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. He, he goes, stay tuned. But then he goes, everything I said is true. <laughs> he does the same thing over and over again. Well, he didn't show up to testify. Surprise, surprise. And then uh, his lawyer basically had to argue in the closing that Giuliani's a, you know, an idiot and he's not a good person. But just remember the good things that he did around 9-11 is basically what the lawyer argued. The jury's been deliberating for about three and a half hours as of the time of this recording. Uh, they wanted to go home for the day. One of that, one of those hours was a lunch break. So they're going home. They're going to come back in the morning on Friday. And I expect there to be a large verdict there. Uh, and finally, Michael Cohen, I want to just talk about this impeachment uh, inquiry right here. Um, if you ask the MAGA Republicans what it is, what is the crime that was committed? They're unable to answer that. Never before in the history is there an impeachment inquiry just because. And even during that first hearing, uh, when there was the impeachment hearing without a formal inquiry vote, the experts that were brought in by the MAGA Republicans said that there was not enough evidence for uh, impeachment. And they all got humiliated, and then the MAGA Republicans refused to allow in any evidence. I, I just want to show you one of the scenes. Uh, during the time when the impeachment inquiry vote was taking place, it was all on party lines. All the Republicans, every single one of them, voted in favor of an impeachment inquiry. All of the Democrats voted against an impeachment uh, inquiry. I want to show you this part, though, where Marjorie Taylor Greene tries to butt into James Comer in Jim Jordan's press conference, and then they have to shut it down immediately because she's talking about, like, sex trafficking conspiracies, and it just goes sideways here. Play the clip. Chairman, that is memorialized in emails that we, that you guys leaked from Hunter Biden's laptop. I would like to have asked Hunter Biden about me and violation. Sex trafficking women across Thank state Thank you all line. very much. Thank you.
Thank you very much. We'll see you later. <laughs> Cohen, Jim Jordan. Listen, I got to give Jim Jordan a little bit of credit on that one. I think Jim Ben is actually beginning to really see the light. I think he's really seeing what's going on inside uh, D.C. there. And while he has not, let's just say, gone to the same extent that someone like a Mitt Romney or Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger by far, I think what he did there is realizing that she's just batshit crazy, and all it's going to do is to put him further behind the ball for this fraudulent and vindictive impeachment inquiry that they started and that they voted on. It is an absolute disgrace to be using the power that you have been given you don't own that power. You've been given that power by we, we the people. They take it, they abuse it, and in all fairness, it's basically meant to distract the American people from the crimes that Donald Trump, the 91 charge that he is being alleged to have committed, and to try to hurt him for the 2024 election, all at the direction of for the benefit of one man, the guy who wants to be king, Baltimore, man whose name shall not be mentioned. I want to thank everybody for watching this episode of Political Beatdown. I want to remind you that here at the Midas Touch Network, we are not funded by outside investors. The way we grow this thing is through our pro-democracy sponsors, those fun emojis you see at the bottom. But here, our patreon.com slash political beatdown. We started off this week with a very special Zoom meeting where everybody got to meet Michael Cohen on our exclusive Zoom meeting. We answered all of the questions that were asked. Patreon.com slash political beatdown. You can DM Michael Cohen on it. Uh, we post exclusive after show podcasts on patreon.com slash political beatdown. We're going to be doing an after show right now, and I want to talk more about Alina Haba and her inability to know what Blasting Game was and why that's well, nothing, so Well, nothing for nothing, because it is now around the time that we bring this political beatdown to the hour-long end. I didn't give anybody the two-finger salute, but Alina, since you decided that yourself, that I have been unusually um, hard on you and that I have been somewhat overactive on my social media, uh, making statements about you and the things that you're doing. Um, I would, like Rudy Giuliani, like to say I'm sorry, but since, of course, I haven't done anything wrong, I do need to, of course, add to these um, so-called you know, representations to you and give you today the two-finger salute for being an idiot, for turning around and saying bullshit uh, to the court in regard to this case, to sitting there and going on your social media platforms, going uh, before different groups with Donald and deciding you want to talk about me uh, and so on. You know, as they like to say in Texas and so on, right? Don't get into the corral if you're afraid to get stuck by the ball. It's just that simple. So, Alina, seriously, fuck you. You're an idiot. 
it's time to turn around and do yourself and do Donald a favor. I know I shouldn't be giving Donald any advice, but the best advice is why don't you just go back and run the super PAC? I mean, that's probably what you're best at, uh, because certainly your performance today before the second circuit, if that is any indication of your capabilities as a lawyer, um, well, it's good for the rest of us. Let me say that. So, you know what? I take it all back. You should. I still don't take that back, but keep representing him because yeah, you're, really doing, you're doing America a major, major service. Yeah, you're a true patriot. We should put up a statue. In, we should put up a statue in Central Park for your service. Alina, you are a patriot. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep representing Donald Trump. Do not let anybody discourage you to leave the legal team. Just following briefs. Keep on waving uh, legal defenses. Just, just keep it, keep it going. Getting to file certain boxes for juries and so on. Yeah, the best. Keep, keep, keep on going. You and the Second Circuit recently held that she, that she or Trump's lawyers waived the presidential immunity affirmative defense in the E. Jean Carroll case by not asserting it for three years. So look, just. Keep doing what you're doing. Right. Go to those wacko rallies that Trump holds. And you, you could run around on stage and claim that you're winning the cases. What, whatever you want to do, stay. <laughs> stay. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Cohen. Thank you all for watching. We're going to do our after show on patreon.com slash political Thank you all so much. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. <laughs> Don't let anybody discourage you. Yeah, she is doing it. She is doing everyone a favor. Staying on that legal team. Verdict watch in Giuliani case and diaper dots hope of delay is crushed. This is what their voters want. This is unprecedented in American history to launch. Um, by the way, keep in mind that these mofos 
need should be behind bars, not in Congress. Okay. See what else Mike's touch has got going on. Diaperdon's NFT website explicitly encourages foreign investors to purchase access. What a crook. <clears throat> Head up Fox host drops a hammer on MAGA impeachment jam leaves co-host speechless. Um, appeals court moves quick on Trump. He loses big. Brutal end for them is near. Deborah loses in court. That's 6 p.m. Another half an hour or so. An A app that creates deep fake nudes of women for the purpose of blackmail. Currently advertising to users on X, formerly Twitter. Undress any girl using AI, yo, Mar Marina. Russian sleeper criminal case against Trump takes center stage after federal ruling three hours ago. Sounds I know it's fun. late, but uh, happy anniversary. Uh, I'm so tired. Mood can help you both get in. The, the people are ready, Your Honor. Those are words that the Manhattan DA's office is gearing up to say on March 24th in the Donald Trump election interference case where he paid a porn star, Stormy Daniels, through his lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, and then lied about it, didn't declare it on his campaign finances, and grossed up wages so that he and Michael Cohen could commit tax fraud and Michael Cohen wouldn't be able to, wouldn't have to claim it or could claim it as income, but would have more money uh, than he was owed. So it would come out as a wash and lied about it in business records. That is the case that is going to be going March 24th. Why do I think that case is going March 24th? Because Judge Tanya Chutkin stayed her case and whether or not the case is going to be going in March 4th now is a grave concern and it might not happen donald trump wants to delay that's what his tactic is here so that he doesn't have to face the music he doesn't want to have to go to trial so he delays delays and delays and he's made a presidential immunity claim which we've been reporting about and reporting that this is a big deal it's not frivolous and why is that exactly for this reason because now Judge Chutkin has no choice but to press pause until the appeal of that case and of the presidential immunity issue is resolved. And that is because if he is immune, there's no trial. If he's not oh immune, God. there is a trial. It's one of those foundational questions that determines whether or not there will be a trial. And so the law is pretty clear here that in a case like that, when it's something that is so foundational, that is, that would absolutely um, be outcome determinative or 
uh, in this case, whether there be burdens of litigation on the defendant, which there would be if it continued, right? Jack Smith has been filing all sorts of motions. He filed a SEPA Section 6 motion today. He wants to keep going with the proceedings, but Judge Chutkin said she had no other choice but to stop and stop the trial uh, until this is decided. Now, two things have to happen. Um, either the D.C. Circuit, well, Jack Smith anticipated this was going to happen. So even before Judge Chutkin stayed the proceedings today, Jack Smith filed in a notice of appeal and a writ uh, of certiorari before judgment to the United States Supreme Court, which basically means, um, Supreme Court, can we skip a step and go straight to you and have you hear this presidential immunity question? Because if it doesn't go now, it's never gonna go. Why is it never gonna go? Because what will happen? Stormy Daniels case is going, right? That's how I started this, because that is exactly what will happen. If it doesn't go March 4th, a couple weeks later, Judge Juan Mershon is going to see that the calendar is clear and the people will answer ready and that will go to trial and that will take some time. And then it's going to bump into the Mar-a-Lago documents case and then the election. And then if the election happens and Donald Trump wins the nomination and wins the election, then what happens next? Anything is your guess, right? He could be like um, like Joe Biden is and not necessarily pardon his son or dismiss the case against his son. No, Joe Biden kept in a David Weiss, who is a Trump prosecutor, right? Trump appointed him to the United States Attorney's Office, made him special counsel, and what happened? This sweeping, scathing indictment against Hunter Biden with felonies and misdemeanors of tax fraud. And then there's uh, a, another gun possession case as well. Do you think Trump's gonna do that? Is he gonna, is he gonna appoint a special prosecutor to prosecute himself? A, he's not gonna do that. And B, you can't prosecute a sitting president. The Office of Legal Counsel of the De of Department of Justice has said, you cannot prosecute a sitting president. So what will happen? It'll either be held in abeyance until after he serves, or more likely, what will happen is whoever the attorney general is that Trump appoints could dismiss the case. Trump could pardon himself. You just don't know. But the case, if Trump wins, is not going if it doesn't go March 4th. Those are the stakes that are on the line, period, full stop. And today, it's just one more nail in that coffin with Tanya Chutkin having no choice but to have to pause the proceedings and pause all of any more pretrial work that would have to be done, including the juries, you know, the sending out jury notices and jury questionnaires, all of that's paused while this gets litigated in the Supreme Court. Now, Jack Smith is also hedging his bets, and he filed a motion with the D.C. Circuit, the interim court, to hopefully, uh, just in case the Supreme Court decides not to take it, he's, he's sort of doing both at the same time, and he's asking both to expedite and to go fast. If you're going to please take it and take it quickly. Now, the Supreme Court has agreed to take it quickly, meaning we will consider whether we are taking it quickly. And so December 20th is the date that um, Donald Trump has to file his response, not to the writ, meaning the writ is like, it's called a writ of certiorari, which is a request to the Supreme Court to take a case. And 
normally a request like that or a writ like that could take years, right? And what Jack Smith wants is this to happen quickly. So his first request is, will you decide whether or not to take the case quickly? And what they said is, yes, we will decide quickly. And so they gave Trump until December 20th to respond to the, is it okay? Or should, what is your position, Trump, on whether or not we should take this quickly? Now, of course, he'll say no, don't do it quickly. But either way, I think they will take it quickly. And then they will decide on whether uh, or not there's presidential immunity, right? And so um, hopefully they'll do it really fast, like they did in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, like they've done in other cases as well. And we will still have our March 4th trial, but it's now December. So whether or not they will do all of this in three months is up for anyone's guess. Um, Judge Chutkin had two limits on her order on her staying order. So number one, uh, the state deadlines and proceedings are held in abeyance uh, rather than permanently vacated, meaning that if and when the case comes back to her, uh, she will then decide whether to retain or continue the dates of any uh, future deadlines, including the March 4th trial. So in other words, she's not saying all, everything she had there, um, like, deadlines for motions, deadlines for other things, and the trial, she's basically saying it's not permanently vacated, it's just on pause, which I think is important. And I think Jack Smith knew this was coming, which is why he's been furiously filing all sorts of motions uh, in the case this week. But it also, number two, she says, this does not divest the court of jurisdiction to enforce measures such as the protective orders on discovery, the gag order, and the protective jury procedures. And she said, these items don't add any additional burden of litigation beyond those Trump already carries. And if a criminal defendant could bypass those critical safeguards merely by asserting immunity and then appealing them, they could irreparably harm any future proceedings. What is she saying there? She's basically saying, it, of course, my gag order still stands, and of course, the discovery protective order still stands. Otherwise, any criminal defendant, all they would have to do is just say, oh, you know, I'm immune, and, you know, and even if it's frivolous, and then appeal it, and at that point could just release everything, right? Release all the discovery, all the witness statements, say whatever they want, and she's basically saying, no, the law doesn't allow that just any future proceedings in until all of these things are decided because it's outcome determinative. So I'm sure the Manhattan DA's office is seeing this just like we are. And I'm sure they were already gearing up and preparing uh, for trial as well, but now more than ever. And again, this is not based on inside information. This is just to work there and I know how they are. Um, I know that they would be, they are absolutely gearing up. And so for those people who said, oh, that's not an important case, the Stormy Daniels case, why that case? Why did that come? This case might be the most single most important case of all because it has the 
best chance of going forward at this point. That case right now is absolutely one that he could be held accountable. Bonnie Willis in Georgia, she already said she asked for August, and so I, that's not going to happen for Trump because the election is in November. And um, and the Mar-a-Lago documents case, he won the lotto when he got Judge Eileen Cannon. You know, she's been... Give, there's no way she's going to have that case go in May. She's already indicated and signaled through all her various delays and rulings that that's not a realistic date, even though she hasn't said it outright. It's clear by reading the tea leaves what she has in mind. And Judge Chutkin, who was going to do this trial come hell or high water March 4th, potentially her hands are tied. Now, it's not 100% not going. It is it potentially, if, ever, if the Supreme Court does this quickly, then this could go right back on track. But now that we have a Supreme Court with, um, with you know, these individuals, these judges, these justices, many of which appointed by Trump, who have been rolling back the norms and rolling back the laws and ruling in ways that, honestly, I can't even predict anymore what they would do, just because uh, they're they're really doing things um, in ways that are against tradition and against uh, how the Supreme Court always operated. But we'll see. We'll see what they do here. But the Stormy Daniels case is is going to turn out to be one of the single most important cases because it, it might actually hold Trump accountable. But we'll see. Um, we'll see what goes and what happens, but stay tuned and uh, stay informed. I'm Karen Friedman at Nicola. Join me and my co-hosts, Ben Mizellis and Michael Popak, every Wednesday and Saturday on Legal AF. Thanks so much for watching. We're only a few subscribers short of 2 million subs. Please subscribe right now to the Midas Touch YouTube channel for free and help us grow this unapologetically pro-democracy network. Stop. Do not invest in another company until you hear about America's number one retirement stock. Look at this photo. You see? The mysterious company behind this stock camouflaged its huge factory of 53,000. Let's put it up. <clears throat> Ooh, that sounds good. Infographic show. 50 insane declassified FBI. The archives are open. In its history of over 100 Secret years, the FBI know. has classified many documents. Until now. Now these government secrets are open for anyone to see. Here are 50 of the most insane declassified secrets of the FBI, including details on one of America's most mysterious residents. Number 50, alive or dead? In the aftermath of World War II, the entire world celebrated the death of the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. But despite the confirmation that his life had ended in a Berlin bunker, as the Allied troops marched in, rumors started to spread. Did Hitler actually escape like so many of his Nazi allies? Maybe to South America? Did he shave his mustache and go undercover as an everyday suburban man? As one ill-advised sitcom imagined? The rumors persisted enough that in the months after the war, the FBI investigated evidence of his survival. And the declassified documents showed, nope, he's dead. It wasn't the only FBI investigation related to the war. Number 49, the wife. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the brilliant physicist heavily responsible for the United States winning the race to the atom bomb, was largely trusted by the U.S. government, despite some past leftist ties. But he was also married, and the FBI had some doubts about her. 
A trained biologist, she worked for the government at Los Alamos to help determine the ability to radiation. The FBI was more concerned with her early life when she'd been involved with communist activist Joseph Delay Jr. and joined the Communist Party. This led to her being investigated by agents about her current ties and to her husband's clearance being reduced. But many FBI investigations during the era were much more wide-reaching. Number 48. Detention. Even before President Roosevelt's infamous executive order that led to the imprisonment of the United States Japanese American population, the government was hard at work arresting people. During the war, anyone deemed a security threat could be rounded up and detained by the government during the national state of emergency, and it centered on three groups, Japanese Americans, German Americans, and Italian Americans. All were arrested with little room for appeal, and the FBI kept an exhaustive list of the numbers. But being investigated by the FBI isn't always a negative. Number 47, the money man. It's rare for someone to play a key role in the home front for two world wars, but Bernard Merrick wasn't an ordinary man. The stock market magnate was chairman of the War Industries Board under Woodrow Wilson and advised President Roosevelt on industry and production decades later. When anyone is that close to the president, the FBI will want to take a look at him. Did they find any red flags on the man? Given that he was later appointed to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission by Harry Truman, it's likely a no. And in some cases, it's all about confirming what's already known. Number 46. Operation Paperclip. When the U.S. government decided to recruit former Nazis to help with the nuclear and space programs after the war, they knew they would need thorough background checks. After all, they were okay with some Nazis, but not the worst of the worst. The FBI was tasked into digging into wartime activities of these scientists and deciding if they were valuable and relatively clean enough to become Americans. Now on the FBI's websites, Americans can... Now on the FBI's websites, Americans can dig into the original reports of figures like Arthur Randolph and Werner von Braun. But sometimes the FBI was looking to prevent war before it happened. Number 45. Flying Solo. While the U.S. never went to war with the Soviet Union, paranoia was high about the communist nation infiltrating and sabotaging the Americans. That's why the FBI created Solo an intelligence effort that spanned two decades. It's placed agents within the Communist Party of the United States to discover if they were passing information to communist nations like the Soviet Union or China. The operation was largely headed by two agents, now declassified as Russian Jewish immigrants Morris and Jack Childs, whose background gave them the skills needed to infiltrate Russian communist enclaves. But not every espionage investigation is above board. Number 44, in the bag. How do you get a search warrant when the subject of the investigation is classified? Simple, you don't. During the 1940s and beyond, the FBI frequently pulled off what was called black bag operations. This was when the organization would simply break into residences or businesses under the cover of darkness and search for evidence without ever informing the subject of the search that they were being watched. Many of these never escalated to criminal prosecution, so they weren't disclosed until the files were declassified. The tactic continued until 1966 when the Bureau ordered it stopped and it was declared unconstitutional in 1972. But not all targets of FBI investigation are as obvious. Number 43, the Lady of Peace. Jane Addams was one of the most prominent early feminist reformers, a tireless advocate in the progressive era for women's suffrage and public housing. She even became the first American woman to be awarded with the Nobel Peace Prize for her role in the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement. So why is there an FBI file on the woman? 
How about a treason investigation? When World War I began, Adams held fast to her anti-war beliefs and she founded a women's party devoted to peace. In the 1920s, when she opposed the persecution of communist activists, the FBI started monitoring her, but came up empty on criminal charges. But one peace movement led to more investigations than any other. Number 42. Yippee! The Vietnam War was deeply controversial, and many anti-war activists wound up being investigated by the government. Chief among them was Abby Hoffman, whose brushes with the law would lead to what became known as the Trial of the Chicago Eight. His group, the Youth International Party, better known as the Yippies, was frequently investigated by the FBI over a period of five years. Those digging through the FBI archives will find a whopping 50-part series on the colorful figure, who wound up being portrayed by Sacha Baron Cohen in the movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. One bloody day would come to define the Vietnam protest movement and lead to years of FBI investigation. Number 41. Blood on American Soil. It started out as any other peace rally in 1970, with students at Kent State University in Ohio protesting the National Guard presence on campus as the war expanded to Cambodia. But what wasn't typical was the National Guard opening fire on the unarmed crowd, killing four students and wounding nine others. Two of the dead were bystanders, not protesters, and massive rallies around the country protested the killings. Ultimately, none of the guardsmen who fired were criminally prosecuted. But the FBI spent years investigating the shooting, and all of those documents can now be read in a 22-part series. But some FBI cases are a lot less serious. Number 40. There's no place like home? Few pieces of movie memorabilia are more iconic. Dorothy's iconic ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. That's why it was such big news when they were stolen from the Judy Garland Museum in 2005. The theft was reported to the police, but the interstate smuggling operation was soon taken over by the FBI. It took the government organization more than 10 years to track down the thief, and even then it took multiple agents on a sting operation before the rare shoes were returned back home where they belonged. But some cases might be a little silly. Number 39. Sing that song. Louie Louie. Oh no. Me gotta go. The song's probably stuck in your head now, right? Nah, we're not. But what does it actually mean? No one really knows, and neither did the FBI. When the popular song by the Kingsmen debuted in 1963, it became a sensation, and many people wondered if the song was hiding a dirty little secret. Were the words secretly pornographic? Were they hiding a coded political message? The FBI spent a full year investigating <laughs> the song and its creators and came up empty, as the lyrics remain as unintelligible as they were back in 1963. It wasn't the only time the FBI got involved in music. Number 38, Not Fab. Everyone loved the Beatles, if their army of screaming fans was any indication. But the government wasn't as fond of the shaggy-haired British band. And the Nixon administration had a particular grudge against left-wing songwriter John Lennon. Nixon was convinced that Lennon was plotting to influence the 1972 election with his popularity. And the FBI launched an investigation that led to the Immigration and Naturalization Service starting the process of deporting Lennon. While Lennon was never banned from the country, he did back off plans for an American tour. A victory for Nixon that was later exposed by journalist John Wiener. But you might be shocked by just how many celebrities have FBI files. Number 37. Before the White House. Ronald Reagan having an FBI file shouldn't be a surprise. After all, they probably like to know about the president. But he was on the agency's radar long before 1980. In 1947, when he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, he had a file. But why would they want to know about the staunch conservative? Surely the last suspect anyone would have as a communist agent. Because Reagan was such a strong anti-communist that he and his then-wife, Jane Wyman, worked with federal agents to turn over the name of any actors they thought might be communists. The future president was an informant, but one more beloved figure had FBI ties as well. Number 36. The Mouse's Secret. 
Walt Disney was notorious for being a traditionalist, and the man behind Mickey Mouse and the Disney parks didn't like anything that shattered the illusion of the all-American happiness in his properties. That included people with unpopular political views, which led to his deep ties with the government. He had worked with them on World War II propaganda films, and long after the war, he was still cooperating with most people have no clue that in 2023, the best way to make money on Amazon is not with physical products. The government. He had worked with them on World War II propaganda films, and long after the war, he was still cooperating with them, giving them information on un-American activities in Hollywood. He continued working with them through his death in 1966, and was even named a full special agent in charge contact. But many celebrities have files for less official reasons. Number 35. The Lady Sings. Why would Whitney Houston have an FBI file? The late singer lived a controversial life, and it got her on the government's radar. While her troubles with drugs and money and her often chaotic relationships landed her in the tabloids, the FBI was more interested in her associates. Many people from her life tried to take advantage of her, including a stalker, who tried to blackmail her for a quarter of a million dollars. But why would one of the least controversial singers of all times be on the list? Number 34. Take Me Home? John Danvers seemed like the guy next door, with his easy-listening country music songs being the type your parents sing along to on a long car ride. But the FBI saw things differently. Up until his death in a plane crash, Denver had amassed a 33-page FBI file. It was mostly concerned with his anti-war activism as a young man and his occasional drug use, but it also followed stalkers and death threats he picked up as a celebrity. The FBI even got involved in some notorious tabloid stories. Number 33, The Bombshell. Anna Nicole Smith was famous for marrying a much older man who died not long after. She inherited most of the fortune, much to the anger of the oil tycoon's son, E. Pierce Marshall. The two were involved in a vicious court battle over the massive bank account, vicious enough for Marshall to believe Smith tried to kill him. This led to an FBI investigation that ultimately decided there wasn't enough to charge Smith. Ultimately, it was all for nothing. Marshall and Smith died within a year of each other in 2006 and 2007. But even the original bombshell was on the FBI's radar. Number 32. Government prefers blondes? Marilyn Monroe has been the subject of countless government conspiracies due to her mysterious death. But the FBI wasn't interested in that. They were more concerned with her love life. One of Monroe's many loves was acclaimed playwright Arthur Miller, who was believed to have communist leanings. Due to Monroe's influence, the FBI kept an eye on her, which led many to believe the government might have been involved in her death. But she wasn't the only icon to wind up in the FBI's files. Number 31. Lucy! Everyone loved Lucille Ball, who along with husband Desi Arnaz, created one of the most iconic sitcoms of all time. But Ball was an eccentric woman who once claimed she picked up spy chatter in her tooth fillings. The FBI was more concerned with her political leanings, as the comedy star had been affiliated with the Communist Party in the 1930s. Ball was repeatedly interviewed and denied having any ongoing communist affiliations. While she was never placed on the notorious blacklists of the 50s, her file grew to 156 pages. But some stars had a rougher road with the FBI. Number 30. Hardly silent. Charlie Chaplin was best known for the fiscal comedy and for famously opposing Hitler with his silent film, The Great Dictator. But he was anything but silent off the screen. He was a political activist who was believed to be a communist sympathizer. Chaplin was a British citizen who worked a lot in the United States, and J. Edgar Hoover wanted to make that more difficult. He even famously blocked Chaplin's return to the U.S. in 1952, which led Chaplin and his wife to depart for Switzerland permanently. This next target wasn't afraid to fight back. Number 29. Turnabout is fair play. 
Truman Capote likely expected to be investigated by the FBI. After all, the author behind Breakfast at Tiffany's was a well-known left-wing activist who supported Fidel Castro in Cuba and exposed the injustices of the U.S. justice system. But why did the colorful author have a 200-page FBI file? That might be because he made a personal enemy of J. Edgar Hoover by spreading rumors that the FBI chief was in a homosexual relationship. Sometimes it's not anything someone does, it's what the FBI thinks they can get. Number 28. Hard Rock. Rock Hudson was one of the first true matinee idols, a handsome movie star who became a sensation in the 60s. But he had a secret, and the FBI was ready to take advantage. Hudson, a closeted gay man, was interviewed by the FBI, and the 34-page FBI file can be accessed online. But not all of it. The file is still heavily redacted, which has led many to wonder what the FBI wanted with Hudson, who famously became one of Hollywood's first AIDS casualties. Sports brought a surprising number of figures to the FBI's attention. Number 27. The Breakthrough. Few figures in American history have become more universally loved than Jackie Robinson, the man who broke Major League Baseball's color barrier. But after his accomplishment, Robinson refused to be quiet and play ball. He became involved in the civil rights movement and supported presidential candidates from both parties. But what got him on the FBI's radar was his support of a Harlem facility for the International Workers' Order, which had supposedly had communist ties. But one sports icon was on the FBI's radar for far less savory reasons. Number 26. Shame of the Yankees. George Steinbrenner was many things, including the owner of the Yankees during one of their most successful periods. But he was also a notorious crook. He made illegal donations to Nixon's re-election campaign, wound up paying a $15,000 fine, and then campaigned to be pardoned of the charges. While he eventually got his wish, his shady financial dealings led him to have an extensive FBI file from 1986 to his death in 2010. Sometimes, people get investigated before a big promotion. Number 25.